This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DeVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. It's time for another edition of the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DeVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. I'm feeling it today. That was a fun, fun weekend of football. Judging by the communications I had with a lot of you, I know that you felt more or less the same way. Alan, we did not get to sit together. Sad. Which was sad. And this is the first time we've actually even talked about the game because we try to do that. We try our best to make these sort of candid takes. How are you feeling? I was loving it. I was sitting on the alumni side with a friend of mine who offered me a ticket you know, it's a little more docile over there, but a good time, some good people, and of course, some beautiful action on the field. So I was having a great time regardless of where I was sitting. We have so much to go over in this episode yet again. Thank you for the feedback about the megasodes, the gigasodes, whatever we call these huge episodes as they get larger and larger. We certainly enjoy bringing you the content, and it's been great to hear that you enjoy consuming the content that we are bringing you. Today's episode is jam-packed, full of a lot of analysis. Of course, we're going to break down uh, Trask entirely. We'll talk about the running game, the offensive line, talk about all the things that you've been thinking about or you want to know the answers to. We've looked at the film extensively. We have the answers to the questions that you are asking amongst your friends and yourself, so we'll get into those. But before we do, of course, we have to talk about one of our favorite subjects, That is Donos. Our patrons. Our patrons, right? If you like the content on this show, you can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. You can email us. You can contact us however you want. We promise we will always respond in a timely fashion. And most importantly, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. It's been a busy week in the patron world. The Dono world was lit on fire. We're going to start with maybe the first lady of the podcast, Amy Campbell. She's an SI reporter up in New York City. One of our first Was that our first guest? Our first guest. And she dropped an XL dono on us, which is awesome. Amy's been a longtime supporter of the show. It's also cool to have somebody that's in the professional media world who loves it. Check her out. She's super talented, does a great job with what she does, covering the NFL, the Eagles. Yeah. So thanks for the XL dono. And we keep adding categories because we have to differentiate people out, right? We have some large donos. So longtime supporter uh, Jeffrey Show. That show or Shao? It's Shao. Jeffrey Shao. You told me how to pronounce it, and then under the gun, I went the wrong way. But it's Shao like shower in the beginning, as you told me on the message. Thank you, Jeffrey. Appreciate it. Uh, moving from a small to large dono, Larry Edwards coming in a large dono, some medium donos with Chuck Pettinger and Ron Noel. Appreciate that, guys. Welcome aboard. And then some small donos from Susanna Roberts, one of my best friend's wives who sent me maybe the greatest message we've ever received about why she listens to the podcast. She works in a doctor's office. The doctors are very sports-oriented, and she needed to be up on her game. And so now she feels like she has impressive knowledge to discuss with them, which we love hearing it. We started the podcast really to capture that essence, improving people's knowledge about football. Brian Dunlap has been a longtime supporter, comes in and out during the season, leaves during the offseason. Welcome back, Brian. Uh, you'll always be known, I think, to me as someone who who painted his chest for many a game during your undergrad Hardcore. years. Hardcore. Yeah, did well. And then Alex Goble, thank you as well. Welcome aboard. And then we had a hundo bomb. Oh, we did like a hype. James Newton coming in hot with a hundo bomb. There's no better email to get than when you see the hundo bomb email. It's exciting. It's fantastic. James, thank you so much for that dono. And then that takes us. From James Newton, who's in the throne room, by the way. James, you're in the throne room with the hundo bomb. 
But up top on the throne, of course, still is Alexander Leventhal. Now, Alexander got a little nervous, I think, from one Diego Rivera, our number one challenger. Diego has been coming in hot, basically upping his dono each and every week trying to catch Alexander. He can't be caught. And out of nowhere, Alexander from the throne sends a number out there. Of course, we can't say what that number is, which is meaningful. Every one of Alexander's numbers have some football meaning, and Alan and I have yet to be able to decipher this current one. haven't cracked that code yet. He hasn't told us. We're still trying. But he basically said from his throne, if you want to challenge me, you're going to have to continue to come at me with everything you have. And Diego has, in fact, kept coming, uh, which has been fantastic. So you've got number one challenger, Diego Rivera. You have the king, the undisputed king from episode one and on, Alexander Leventhal. And then in the room observing all the craziness is James Newton with the, with the hundo Calculating bomb. in the corner, Littlefinger-esque. Taking a look, right. So fantastic stuff. Thank you, as always. We love joking about donos and hundo bombs. But actually, it's amazing. We appreciate your support. And certainly, if you, if you don't support us, you don't have to. And if you want to, we'll give you all sorts of fun love and shout-outs on the pod. We also want to thank a lot of you that have been longtime supporters on Patreon. And we're going to give you some of those shout-outs now. Neil Callanan. And we had some some discussion, Neil, as to whether or not it was supposed to be Callahan, and it was it was spelled incorrectly. But we're pretty confident that it's Callanan. So there it is for that. Nick Karras, who's been a longtime supporter, a guy that used to live in Gainesville, I talk with frequently about sports. Nick, I know you got your daughter prepping to be the first Gator female football player. I'm sure at some point in time down there. And then P. Chen, Richie Legler, Rick Kingsley. Alan, say a few words about the Minister Rick. Yeah. Our uh, Gator, who living in air, enemy territory in Tallahassee, what up, dude? Rick's a Pats fan, even though he's one of my good friends. And so I just see Rick with this big Boston-like beard and think of the Pats, and it makes me kind of happy and sad at the same time because I'm a Dolphins fan. Ryan Belmore, the illustrious Ryan Belmore, the successful Ryan Belmore. Thanks for your support. Appreciate that. Ryan Gilbert, I don't know why you're pointing at me like that, Alan. Is there something you wanna you wanna get at here? Give me give me what you want to say. You got there. Well, so- you you accidentally skipped over one. Our boy... I was saving that for you. Oh. Yeah, I was going to come back to it. Go for it now. Now's the time. Uh, Robert, I will say Ostbay. Had a fun little accent on that. But uh, yeah, welcome to the Dono world. Thank you. Appreciate it. Of course, he's been a part of the Dono world for a long time. But yeah, great with the O. It's got the fun symbol O. So I have to for Alan, because Alan lived in Russia for a while and married a Russian. So I felt like maybe that's like an Eastern European thing. And if it's not, tell us we're wrong. Uh, Ryan Gilbert. The first lawyer of the Gator Nation Football Podcast and part of the text thread. Thanks for your support, as always, of course. Scott Greenberg, who now has his own podcast and a longtime listener to this podcast. A PT in his own right. Uh, one for many of the Gators. Awesome support. Thanks, Scott. Scott Poyer. Scott Stoll. Stephen Benfelt. Stephen Kirkhoff. TJ Nowick. Travis Young. Listening all the way from Belfast, Northern Ireland. Which is pretty legit, right? Uh, and this one is interesting. Try and Uwe, or maybe try and Dewey. It's all one word. I'm not really sure. Warren Bucknam, Wayne Patterson. Wayne, thanks so much for the longtime support as you bounced around, I think, owning and running various Chick-fil-A's. Will Kilstein and Zach F., just the artist known as Zach F. Thank you guys so much. We certainly appreciate it. Like we said, we spent a lot of time in the opening to go over this. All right, Alan. It's opening thoughts time. Always a fun kind of discussion. What do we feel abruptly after the game? Well, I mentioned how much I was loving it. I was imagining you on the other side of the stadium, just losing it with joy at seeing Trask throw the ball all over the field. How are you feeling on the other side of the stadium? 
I was loving it. I think at several times I asked my friends around me to pinch me to make sure this was actually happening and this was real life. And then there were other times, Alan, where I was white hot mad, texting things in all caps to my friends like, Dan, sure. what are you doing, Dan? Stop doing this to me, Dan. Why is this happening? And we will unpack what those things were. But Trask's play and the excitement I felt coming in was everything that I wanted. All of a sudden, we were explosive on offense. All of a sudden, our receivers looked very talented. We were doing things we hadn't done since Will Greer played a couple of games for us. And before Will Greer, it was Tim Tebow, right? I and mean, we hadn't seen this very often. It's been 10 years of, of really poor quarterback play. That was a lot of fun. I had these great Tennessee fans right next to me having fun conversations with. It was It was great. It felt like how Florida football has always wanted to feel in my mind, or at least close to it. And that was something that I thoroughly enjoyed. I loved it too. Yeah, it felt there's a lightness to the air. People were excited. People were hopeful about how the offense was going to look. So I've gotten this question a lot. And let's go ahead and talk about it at the top. We played really well. We'll talk about how great Tennessee was as an opponent. You were a little bit scared of them. Was this a little bit of a mirage, like a one-time Hey, you look great out there. Kyle Trask, first start, had an excellent game. So a little mirage, or was it sustainable? Can we do this again? Yeah, this is very much sustainable. We had a great matchup the week before with Kentucky, which we mentioned on the podcast. We came into this game saying they were going to wind up lining up in ways to attempt to confuse Trask, which Kentucky did not do. This was definitely a new challenge for Trask. And although Tennessee has plenty of issues, which we're going to talk about on film— just simply lining up differently on most snaps is, an, is a challenge in and of itself for a quarterback. It was not a mirage. This was not bubble screens that went for big plays. These were not trick plays that went for touchdowns. This was a systematic passing beatdown. And there were also some things systematically that weren't so good for us that we'll talk about. But this is very sustainable. What we did against Tennessee can be done against any team that can't match our wide receiver talent. And Allen can't generate any sort of pass rush with just their front four. And that's something I don't think I've ever said on this podcast, that teams are going to need to generate a pass rush with just their front four. I'm confident I've never said it. It's something I say watching the NFL on Sundays all the time, but not watching Florida. And that was a crucial piece of this game. So this is definitely very sustainable uh, with what we saw on Saturday. I agree. You're right. It wasn't trick plays. It wasn't total deception. It was running the parts of our offense that don't normally get highlighted. We've had these plays in the playbook. We just don't execute them in the way that Trask is able to or willing to, potentially. So, so much fun out in the swamp. I know one thing that you were not loving was maybe this particular game day experience for you, the crowd itself. Do you want some comments for the crowd? So, the Knoxville paper wrote an article late Saturday night that basically summed up, this is how bad things are for Tennessee. We can't even win at Florida when they've got three of their best players out. They were assuming Franks was one of those, which was a poorly written article right from the get-go, right? But three of their best players are out. The swamp is not even a shadow of what it once was. It's half empty. It's Ouch. disinterested. It's a game at noon. And they're not wrong, Alan. They're not wrong. What's going on in college football, but even more so what's going on here at Florida, is something we've highlighted before in the podcast, and I think it's time to do it again. It's a small crowd on both the alumni and student side. This, it's criminal on the student side. They're going to have to do something about that. The tickets are overpriced. Yes, they are. Right. The TV experience can be better. Yes, it can be. Things need to be done. But even the pregame experience, it's like an ADD paradise in there. 
the the game the, the game buildup doesn't make sense. They often get the the wrong things at the wrong time. The speakers don't work well. And I know that that you know we know Scott Strickland listens to this podcast sometimes. And obviously, you're not going to try to come with a ton of negativity. But things need to be done, Alan, to improve the game day experience in Florida. And it's not always bells and whistles. A lot of it is getting the flow right, getting the price right. That stadium needs to be at least close to full. And if the students don't want to come, then we need to reduce their allocation significantly. I mean, something has got to be done to get this game day experience even somewhere near where it was. And again, all the Tennessee fans next to me had been coming to games for a long time, and they could not stop commenting on how different it was. Like, wow, is it always like this? This is nothing like I remember it. I was like, oh, this is pretty much the norm. And so if you're younger and you're, you know, your early 20s, you probably really have never experienced the swamp with what it was like on every game. And if you're in your 30s, you know what it felt like. And if you're in your 50s, you've seen everything, right? So, Alan, I think it was just a, a culmination for me. Yes, it's a new game. Yes, there's excuses. But it's just a different era in college football all around. And it's very different here in Gainesville. Uh, the school getting better and better and harder and harder has less and less students that are even really culturally aware of the game of football. And, you know, I think the game of football itself is culturally losing relevance potentially based upon the political statements and other things. We're not going to talk too much about that today, but I think there's things Florida can do, Alan, to improve the experience. I know they're looking into it. I hope we can get it back to where there was energy in the stadium that matches what our team could potentially be putting out there in an exciting fashion. Yeah, and hopefully the team is going to get more and more exciting to watch with Kyle Trask under the helm. I know you wanted to, before we get into the meat of it, some people were asking about even our background, our story, and how we got this thing started. Yeah, so it's a good time to reset the pod, right? We've been around now for, this is our fifth season. Yeah, fifth, at least. Fifth season, which is great. And this all started when Alan walked into my living room and said, you know, the funny thing, I was trying to find a Gator podcast here in early August, and I, I couldn't find a single one. Like, there wasn't even one that really existed or had any kind of usage. And I said, okay, that's great. What do you want to do? He's like, well, I think we should start one. What do you think? Well, let's go for it. You know, neither of us had any podcasting experience whatsoever. Hit up the Google machine, bought a couple of microphones, bought, you know, bought like a, a, a way to load the pods onto the internet because now that's free. It wasn't then. And we began. And so we hoped 100 people would listen. If we said if 100 of our friends listen to this podcast even one time, it'll be worth doing it and we'll do it for fun. And that was really the expectation but secondarily, from the beginning, we knew we wanted to do something different. We wanted to bring technical football knowledge and analysis, basically how Alan and I have watched the game together for years with our friends. We wanted to bring that content out into the mainstream and talk about football the way that we consumed it. And that was the goal. And we said, if people don't like this because analysis does not work well over the airwaves, so be it. We wanted to kind of live and die on that hill. And I think the coolest thing for both of us is that we have lived into that mission and that's what's been why I think so many of you enjoy the podcast. You're learning about football. You're getting a chance to get exposed to some non-homer opinions. And you're getting real analysis about the game. And so a quick story about our backgrounds. Alan and I both went to University of Florida. Uh, for me on the football side, um, I grew up playing baseball and soccer. Played a lot of football, but not at my high school. I went to Riverview High School in Sarasota, Florida, which ran the wishbone option Veer. I myself would have been a, a passing quarterback, right? Uh, very, very good school. We were top five in the in the state and in the country at one point in time when I was there. Came to college, fell in love with flag football, and then really fell in love with the chess match that was football with quarterbacking. And that began studying the game, watching the game, learning about the game, culminating with me 
reaching a high level as a quarterback and flag. And then eventually last year and the year before really playing and coaching on a professional team, which had Danny Warfel, Michael Vick, Jason Navon, some other guys uh, to where I could really use a lot of the stuff I talk about on the podcast actually in the passing game. And if you guys follow high school football, has become a very important medium for quarterbacks. So, so much of those things translate over. So we carry that into our football analysis. Uh, and that that's really where a lot of the show comes from. And so our background is not that Alan and I coached football. I think, in fact, that's what helps us. is because we didn't coach football at a young age, we were able to form a higher level strategic opinion on it. Um, and then before I let Alan kind of give you some, some thoughts on where he comes from, for me as a professional investor by day, my life is absorbed with strategy. And so what we talk a lot about on this podcast, game theory, strategy, uh, statistics, plays into how we prefer to do things and handle things. And so I think our unique backgrounds, um, uh, you know, coupled with our passion for Florida is what led this to be what it is. Yeah, and I'm obviously not a former player, former coach either. Someone who's been in Gainesville and around the university very intensely for a long time and really began loving Florida football when I stepped on campus. And like many of you, really have just never been the same since that first time in the swamp. Grew up in Jacksonville, going to Florida Georgia games a lot, but you know, goes to a whole nother level when you're a student at UF going to the games. And it was a comment that actually my wife made that she said she really enjoyed sitting in between James and I at the games listening to us talk, learning about that. And so when I thought about maybe we should do a podcast, immediately the first person I came to was James. Uh, yeah, I love talking about football at a higher level, not one just purely on emotion, but from a fan perspective as well, that hopefully we can be really invested, but not with gator-colored lenses all the time. Uh, so we love doing it. Enough about us. Let's talk about the Gators. The Gators won 34-3. to That's a beatdown in any sense of the word, especially in an SEC game. James, we were somewhere close to the score. You said 35-17. I said 28-17. You know, close to us on offense. Not that close on defense. Shut them down to three points. They obviously left some points on the board. But does it feel like, to you, we should have scored even more points in this game? It does. It feels like both teams probably should have scored more points. Tennessee wouldn't have gotten more than 14 or 17 at the highest level. They should have definitely had 10. And we had two trips there in the third quarter where we were on the 30-yard line and got nothing, right? Two interceptions. So we should have probably had you know, maybe 42 Plus or a, 38. Or, I don't know if this is one of those drives with Jacob Copeland correct. dropping an obvious touchdown. Dropping well. an obvious touchdown pass, right? So uh, I think there were there were points on the board that were there for sure. And just the way we move the ball with the ease with which we move the ball at times, it felt like that. But... I think if you look at our scores and you look at the the Vegas spread, right, it was 14 at the most, uh, 34 to 3 was a fantastic outcome. And I think you got to start there. I think most Gator fans feel that way. And now what we're going to try to unpack is how fantastic was this? What are some concerns that we have? What can we take from this for the future? Uh, and, and how can we kind of view the gauntlet that's upcoming after this weekend? And this is really going to define our entire season. What can we take from this game? to create an impression of what the future may look like. And I think that's that's what's going to be fun about this podcast. And we're going to start like we always do by breaking down Florida's offense versus Tennessee's defense. We'll talk about what we said last week and then walk you through what actually happened. So coming into this week, it was very interesting how they're going to choose to defend us. Kyle Trask looking very much different than Felipe Franks, even though you 
they're a similar type of player in a sense, much more so than someone like Emory Jones. What were they going to do to try to stop Trask? What were they focused on, James? Well, their game plan, as we said last week, was to make us run the ball. And they were going to defend the pass more. And in fact, right out of the gate on the first play of the game, Tennessee comes out plus two in the passing game. Now, what do we mean by that? We mean that they actually have two extra defenders covering our receivers. So if we send three out there, they're committing five of their 11 guys to stopping us at the pass. That has never happened under the Felipe Franks regime at any given time. There's never been a time on first down when a team lines up plus two in the pass. So that shows you right out of the gate that the film they saw on Trask against Kentucky led them to believe the same thing we would believe, which is this guy can read defense and he can pass. So that was something interesting we said we thought we'd see. They were comfortable all game long being at least down one man against the run. And again, that's something we thought that was going to happen. So their game plan was, in fact, to make us run and stop the pass. They also didn't want to blitz Allen. And I think that shows you they were wary of their own back end. They're also young and inexperienced. We've talked about this before. If you've been a longtime listener, and we had Randy Shannon, a guy himself who likes to be vanilla on defense, one thing that was true, whether it was Randy Shannon or not, is we had almost no experience on the back end. And if you're playing young guys in the back end, it is really difficult to try to blitz because those guys oftentimes totally blow the coverages. And Tennessee was deathly afraid of that. We'll talk about when they actually went to that. But their game plan was definitely to try to confuse Kyle Trask with different coverage schemes. That was the plan. That was their goal. It was fascinating to watch us operate against that kind of defense. And partly that they also assumed correctly that we were not going to be able to run the ball even in favorable situations. Uh, But despite them hedging their bets towards us throwing the ball, we were still able to complete a ton of passes into wasn't just always squeezing the ball into tight windows, getting guys open, scheming them open, and also throwing them open. Defeating that particular game plan gave me a lot of confidence. So let's talk about what we were trying to do to be successful against that defense. Well, we thought coming into it, our game plan would be to use Kroll to block more to give us time. And that was a large part of the game plan. I think we quickly realized that Tennessee in and of itself was not actually going to blitz us. And in fact, they could gain almost no pressure with their front four. So then it became the the Kyle Pitts show is really what it was. We used Pitts as a flex matchup player all over the place. We motioned him across the field. We found out when they were in man. We found out when they were in zone. We created super favorable matchups for him on the weaker side of the field. Uh, One thing Trask does really well, which we're going to get to, is he makes excellent pre-snap reads going with the favorable numbers. And Pitts was almost always the flex chip we used to change that number around. And he was an absolute matchup nightmare for them. He only wound up having four catches in this game, but it felt like he had a million because he was constantly drawing so much attention from their defense, and they absolutely could not cover him. So that became the main way we attacked them. Whether we actually used that as a direct pass to him or we fainted that attack, it drew a ton of attention from Tennessee's defense. It was a good game plan from us. I thought, if anything, Alan, as we're going to unpack a little later, we were too conservative, I think, in some regards. Uh, Maybe we underestimated Trask or... My more likely thesis, which we're going to talk a lot about on this podcast, is that I think Dan Mullen showed us what I thought he was going to show us in this game, which is his true tendency is still to have a running quarterback with a more conservative mindset. He opened this up some, yes, but he still finds himself kind of crawling back into what he likes to do at certain times. So the game plan was 
more or less what we expected. It was sound with Pitts, and it shows you something we hoped for preseason, right, Alan? Pitts could be a, a fantastic mismatch as a wide receiver. We needed him to become competent blocking. I don't think he's competent blocking at the level we need against the Auburns and LSUs of the world. But as a receiver, there is no doubt this guy is a major mismatch against any linebacker in the SEC. Yeah, it's really difficult to cover him. If you watch what Tennessee was doing at certain times, who they were trying to put on him, they couldn't find anybody to match up with him. If you put a linebacker on him, he's going to smoke them. A corner, he's just going to get in front of them and blot them out. I love the way we used him. This is what we've been looking for from a tight end. I don't think we've had anywhere closest since Jordan Reed left. The guys we've had in the program, they've been okay. They've they've done their jobs at a certain level, but they were basically replacement level. Kyle Pitts is – I don't know if he's going to play in the NFL, but he is such a huge factor in the college scene. Love what we're getting him out of the passing game. Like you said, I do want to see him improve in blocking, but I think that's something that will come as he gets bigger and stronger and more experienced and more technical because I don't think he was ever really asked to do anything remote like he's being asked to do now on our offense. It was interesting. You know, we we saw some of those bunch formations where last week we saw two wide receivers and a tight end. It was now two tight ends and a wide receiver, and that was much more effective in running the ball. So wonderful to see that moving forward. You know, this is Dan Mullen, though. He's never going to be an air raid guy, for better or worse. And there there are some minuses to this if you're throwing the ball on every down. He wants to maintain some kind of balance, and I – I can't say that I disagree with that. To beat the best teams, being unpredictable, um, being able to play right-handed or left-handed into your strengths and into your weaknesses is is helpful. If you become so one-dimensional, I think it will burn you in the end. I like that he still is attempting to get us further along the road. And in a situation where we we knew we could gain yardage passing ball, we had a overmatched opponent in one particular arena and we were able to take advantage. But I know there's some frustration there that we still were unable to run the ball. Before we get to that, I want to talk about where we're successful. We've cracked on the O-line a little bit for their execution in the run game, but they looked excellent for the most part in pass protection. Uh, You saw a ton of time on certain plays where they just formed a shell and I'll actually say Kyle Trask does a beautiful job of staying in the pocket, getting the ball out. And even when there's a guy coming in his face, he's not going to necessarily take a big hit, but it's pressure and he doesn't evade the rush moving out. He stays there. He climbs the pocket. He slides in the pocket. I was so impressed by him because Tennessee was getting some pressure, but you couldn't tell because Trask was getting the ball away um, on time. And so Kudos to the offensive line and Kyle Trask for negating any sort of Tennessee pass rush other than the few times they were able to break through. Yeah, I think that's a that's a key. There were two things at play there. One, in the pass blocking scheme, when they're committing more people to actually have to guard the pass, guess what you can't do? You can't aggressively bring extra defenders into the box, which teams do against Felipe. They didn't have a linebacker who was just choosing to do whatever he wanted every play. They were getting depth to stop the middle routes we were killing them on. Right, which is another thing we did very well. We attacked the middle of the field. Since I've been a Gator fan, there have been precisely three quarterbacks who have thrown in the middle of the field. Kyle Trask, Will Greer, and Rex Grossman. I'm not kidding. Three. 
You can go back and look at them. There have been three. Almost every other Gator quarterback struggles greatly. And I'm going to that. Like once you go Spurrier time, it's different, right? A lot of that stuff is middle of the field. But if you're talking Urban Meyer era, Tim Tebow rarely ever threw the ball over the middle of the field. And if he did, it was almost like a dedicated little drag route. Or something deep, deep down the middle Correct. of the field. Correct. It was, was more of like an Urban Meyer 1.0 offense, which again, we've talked a lot about Dan Mullen's offense is not doing it. It was comforting to see we did run a lot of those, those two-level dig routes. What do I mean by two levels? We ran a short drag. We ran a medium like a dig, like a 10 to 15 yard route. Those are really good route combinations. We abused Tennessee with them all day. Obviously, we were very successful quarterbacking and that helped the offensive line. When you're sliding in the pocket, when you're climbing in the pocket, if one guy happens to get beat on the edge and you climb, no harm, no foul. Franks almost had a knack for finding a way to run into the one guy who got beat. And so that was all on display in this game. I think it helped to contribute to Tennessee wearing out on every single play if you're constantly trying to get off the ball and you're not getting anywhere and they're completing passes on you. It's very frustrating. Uh, and as the game went on, I thought our fitness level, again, is testament to Savage's strength training program shown through tremendously. Our players look very fresh entering the fourth quarter and Tennessee was dead. Those guys were absolutely dead in the fourth quarter. We didn't have a tremendous amount of time of possession advantage entering the fourth quarter, yet they completely folded um, with regards to fitness. So that was really, really good. I thought a couple of other notes here that were interesting, Alan, on film, when we went to 12 personnel, so we have one running back and two tight ends, what you consider to be a heavy package, and we're under center, right? Kentucky, I mean, not Kentucky, Tennessee kept not only their two safeties back, but they also kept their two corners back. They would actually backpedal off the ball, expecting a deep pass for play action. And the sad part about this is you dream of this as a coordinator because that means we have nine guys blocking their seven, Right? Maybe the quarterback take it out eight versus seven. That you you want that. You have your strong run package in, and yet we could barely run the football. But it's important to note on film, when Franks was running those plays, most teams didn't have a single real safety. They would all be within five yards of the ball. And we'd still run it anyway. So there's a lot of help to think of Dan's going to keep running it. That's helpful. Secondarily, and to your point, Alan, I want to kind of uncover this here for a second before we kind of get into the film a bit more. This concept of balance is an interesting one. So I want to look at this like a like a game theory exercise. What's the best move to make each turn? And each turn of a football game is going to be each play, right? The right move is what's giving you the highest expected value. What's tricky here is if even if you're passing into a, a plus two front where they have two extra defenders in the pass, if you're consistently completing passes and you're gaining eight, nine, ten yards of pass, you would just keep doing it. You could just continue to do that if you're not throwing picks, if your quarterback's making good reads, if they're not getting pressure, right? And you could assign a risk value to that and a reward value to that. And then you could assign a risk value to running and a reward value to running. And essentially what you do is you would take whatever number was higher. That would be optimal playing of the game. That's how I like to look at football. That would not marry me to either one. That means some games, you look at the run and go, well, I'm getting six yards of carry and there's no there's no risk here, right? And I'm only throwing it for eight yards of pass, but I'm, I'm really having a tough time, tight windows. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run the ball 50 times a game, right? So this idea of balance is an interesting one to me. I want to unpack kind of what you talked about because I get a lot of comments on this. Well, one-dimensional, what are we going to do? Well, first of all, spoiler alert, we're not going to be good at running the ball. We talked about that preseason. You could not expect this offensive line to be a good running unit. That's a pipe dream. But second of all, Alan, how important is balance? We know it's very important to Dan Mullen. He said in the presser, he basically didn't want to quote a bend in the run, which is a funny thing to say when you're beating a team 24 to 3, but that's how important it is to him, this idea of 250 passing yards, 250 rushing yards, very important. For you, when you're talking about balance, how important is that 
for you for the sake of balance? Or when you say that, are you talking about maybe you're going to need to run later when yes. when you could gain that higher expected value? And maybe if you haven't practiced it during a game, maybe you can't get there. Right. I don't really care if we throw it 90-10 or run it 90-10 if we're being extremely successful at one. I don't want us to be incapable of doing the other because there might be some defenses who they are phenomenally effective at defending the pass and really weak against the run. But if you're so ineffectual at running the ball that you cannot take advantage of it, it's going to really hamper you. So again, I would love to throw us, if we're having extreme success throwing the ball, to have some kind of uh, arbitrary line of division about what I think is successful balance-wise, that's not helpful for me. What I mean is I want to be effective and credible as a threat in both areas of the game. And you did see often, even despite the fact we weren't all that effective at running the ball, when we did play action, it did produce the desired effect. The linebackers sunk in, were able to get Copeland on a seam over the top. It did work because teams knew that we were still going to run the ball. If you completely stop running the ball, they will ignore that play action, that you lose that tool in your tool belt. So I, I would like us to become better. I, I don't feel like I want to be 50-50. That's not my goal. I want to be effective in whatever we want to do. I like that. And that's good because that leads right into a concept that happened in this game. The majority of the time we ran into good fronts. And we asked this question entering this game. Will we only really run into good fronts and be willing to pass into equal number fronts? We more or less were. In fact, we actually passed a lot into into plus fronts, like we said, we were down a man or two, but we trusted Trask to do so, which is which is nice. That's positive. Where Dan Mullen, I think, shows his real roots are when there's high leverage situations, right? So fourth down or red zone. Those are when coaches get to be their most like them, true their true selves, right? In between the 20s, what do coaches they trust? are more free. What do they trust? So the very first red zone drive that uh, we got now, keep in mind, our first touchdown was not a red zone drive, right? But our first red zone drive, in the red zone, we're on a 10-yard line, classic red zone offense, we immediately go to a very conservative Dan Mullen game plan. Now, let me tell you how interesting this is on film. Tennessee, for the first time all game, as soon as we got into the red zone, went to the, basically the Felipe Franks defense. They moved all their safeties down. They played one guy high, and they expected the run. They expected the run. We went run, run, little trick play, which did not work, and we got stopped. And they expected every single one of them. And I remember yelling furiously in the stands in my head and texting it out to the group, you don't need to get cute when you have a real quarterback. That was an example of us running into a bad front twice and then running a little gadget play with a quarterback does not need gadget plays. Just take your matchups, run regular routes. One of your guys is going to win. Trust your quarterback to get there. I will say, to Dan's credit, the next time we got to the red zone, we threw all that junk out the window and we ran very regular football plays which I think is good. It showed me that, A, everyone in the world knows what Dan likes to do. Tennessee prepared for it perfectly. But Trask, and the reason we said, Alan, this team could have a higher ceiling, is primarily because of this. Sometimes when coaches get a guy that kind of push them out of their natural tendency, it can help them the most. I'm convinced, Alan, that Urban won a national championship because JT Barrett got hurt and Cardell Jones came in. Cordell Jones was not a better quarterback per se, but he was best for that moment because they played so out of their character that no one knew how to defend them. I think Trask is doing that for us right now. And I want I want all of you to listen as listeners to really take that home. Kyle Trask changes the way Dan Mullen's entire career has gone with how he throws the football. 
Now, whether or not that translates into us winning more or less, there's a lot of factors. But at a base level on film, the coaches are unsure of what to do now against the Dan Mullen offense. They're not totally sure anymore, which does introduce what you're ultimately talking about, Alan. Am I going to use my left hand or my right hand? And it's going to be fun to watch how Dan Mullen employs this. Let me counter this for you, Alan. Emery on film. When Emery's in the game, it's to Kyle Trask plan. And Emery was very unsuccessful until the fourth quarter. And so what they did is they immediately went to one safety. They brought no one in the box. They were super aggressive against the run. They had absolutely zero respect for Emory passing the ball. They no longer overloaded those three receiver sets. They played one-on-one. They didn't care at all about him throwing the football, right? Emory playing quarterback for this team, Allen, would be a significant drop. A significant drop. We've seen enough now. I think we're going to break him down more to say, if he had to come in and play tomorrow, we're in the worst version of Dan Mullen offense. Emery seems far away. It's too limited to make a full opinion, but he seems far away from a guy who's complete. It frustrated me to no end the amount of time that Emery got to play in this game. And that is what drove me the most mad. Were you frustrated or not? I know people are all over the place. I was white hot mad with how many snaps Emery got early in this game, the third quarter of this game. It just felt gratuitous to me. I didn't hate it nearly as much as you did. Uh, I do want to balance getting reps for a guy in Kyle Trask who has not played hardly at all in his career. He needs the reps. Also, I recognize the next guy up is Emory Jones, who cannot replicate what he's doing. So there's a risk-reward for me of playing time when we're ahead like that or just getting him the other guy some reps. Because guess what? If Trask goes down... Emory Jones go down. We're in a situation where we're playing Skyler Morningweg esque people again. I don't necessarily want to get there. I, I so I don't know if that's what Dan was thinking. I would like to get Emory some more reps, but he wasn't getting reps throwing the ball. I would have liked to see him run some stuff that maybe would be helpful for us. Now again, if you just want to eat clock at the end of the game, I'm all for that too. That's great. Put Emory Jones out there. Let him hand it off to Damian Pierce a million times. It's fine. Whatever. I don't care. In the middle of the game, though, you know what? I don't know if that was just a pre-planned kind of, we're going to bring this in just to make Tennessee freak out. Uh, it wasn't very effective in the beginning of the game. I will say, though, that us running the ball with Emory, and we're going to get to this, is more effective overall than us running the ball, even to a running back with Kyle Trust, because of the threat of the QB running. Well, and you're hitting on all of my fear factors. I, I hear you talk and I get these chills up my spine because it's it's what I said in the pod last week. I know until Dan proves me otherwise that all the data says that Dan loves a running quarterback. I know that Dan puts Emery in because Dan thinks that Emery can help the running game. That to me is like sugar for your diet. It's trash. Tennessee's not a good defense. If you can't run on Tennessee, putting Emery in to do something he could do in practice, which is run the zone read, is a waste of time to me. And I'll tell you why. Meaningful reps for Emory are what you said. Make him pass the ball some. Try to develop him. If you're going to argue that he needs reps to get better, make him do something he's not good at. Those are good in the game, right? But to make him run a zone read, listen, that's the most practicable skill in the whole daggone world. Guy, why? Because you can set up who you're going to read. There's one guy you read. You're going to read the end. You're going to read the linebacker. Guy takes in, give the ball. Doesn't run. That's the easiest thing. That's why high school players do it all the time, right? So why is Dan doing it? Because he's hitting my fear right on the head. He's doing it because he thinks, and I think he thinks this is sustainable, this is going to be our running game. And he said after the game, he was disappointed he didn't get to play Emory more. 
He wanted to play him more earlier in the game, which tells you exactly what we said on this very podcast now last week, that my fear is Emory Jones will become our running back, our running game, and Trask becomes our passing quarterback. That is not going to work. Any good team is going to do exactly what Tennessee did, and they're going to shut Emory down without a single problem. Now, yeah, Emory can run all over teams in the fourth quarter when they're tired. He's much better at holding the zone. He's much quicker. But let me also tell you this, Alan. Emory's not a good running quarterback. Spoiler alert, he's not very good as a dual threat. He's a plus average guy coming out of high school. He's not really a runner. He was like kind of a runner and kind of a thrower. But this guy's not a sensational runner. He's not a guy that's going to crank out the guards on Auburn or Alabama or Georgia. So maybe if you had a guy like that, I'd be more prone to saying it. But to me, he's like a cutesy guy that's kind of stuck in a weird position that's not a good thrower, is a better runner than Trask, but still not a great runner. And now we're going to give him a ton of snaps a game. I don't know. I don't like it because to me, you've got a real quarterback who makes great decisions. You've got a real problem in the running game. We're going to talk about who can improve that. I don't like taking snaps away from a guy who hasn't gotten a lot of snaps to give it to another guy who I kind of feel like at this point in time, Alan, may never be a starting quarterback for Florida. It's, it is interesting. You can see Dan's comfort level. He prefers to run the ball in the red zone, like you said. It's making us, not, you know, taking us out of our comfort zone. So some of that is good for Dan, probably. But I think it's going to be harder for us to score points in the red zone moving forward. That's something to keep an eye on. The Emory stuff, I don't know. I'm not going to kill him for it yet. I want to see how this actually plays out. Now, the real wrinkle would be to keep Emory in the game a lot and use him as a slot receiver that you motion in. That way defenses couldn't substitute on and off the field. I don't think we're going to go anywhere near that other than maybe a couple trick plays, which would be useful. So having them shuffle in and out, if you run Emory on and Trask off, the defense is just going to substitute. It's not going to really buy you anything unless you have a particular package in a particular situation. I am for that. Hey, we got fourth and one. We have this great play with Emory. Bring it out there. I'm fine. When it's a very particular, specialized situations. Otherwise, let Chef Trask cook. He was awesome. Don't take the ball out of his hands. I, and some people say that on NFL broadcasts, like, why would you run this play? It's like, well, because you think this other play is going to be really effective. And it's a situational thing. So I don't, I'm not married to that idea of like, you never take the ball of Aaron Rodgers' hands. That's stupid to me. Uh, but those plays aren't going to help us win consistently. Right. Take the higher expected value play. And in this case, you've got a situation where it's Tennessee, then Towson. Every rep Trask could have gotten against Tennessee was useful, especially where they were rotating their back end defense. Because Towson's going to give Trask zero useful reps. That won't that won't look anything like Auburn is going to look. Tennessee's not Auburn, but it's a lot closer to Auburn. So I would have liked to have seen more there. But let's put that to bed for now. We'll pick up the individual play in a second. Let's look at the second half. There were two interesting adjustments that I think are going to really help uh, this team going forward. So, of course, Tennessee in the first half gives up 200-plus passing yards. Name the last time a Gator quarterback's had 200 Amazing. passing yards and a half, right? So a complete annihilation of their defense by tracks. There's beautiful, beautiful stuff. Could have been a lot more, I feel like, in the first half. Wound up not being more. So Tennessee, of course, makes a change. They come out early on trying to play man, and they play a little bit more cover one. They were very worried about playing cover one because like we saw against Kentucky, as soon as Kentucky went cover one, we went vertical route. So Tennessee says, we don't want to do that. We want to try to confuse him and pick off Kyle Trask. Maybe this guy will throw interceptions. So their adjustment is to do that. For the first drive against us, takes a second to figure out what's kind of going on. 
And that once that's diagnosed, we really have a lot of success against them. We begin to really open the game up. And then it kind of slides back the other way. So Dan had several calls in the first half that were absolutely beautiful, basically almost predicting what Tennessee was going to shift into post-snap. So pre-snap, they tell quarterback Trask, okay, hey, look, Trask, we'll end up in a cover two. And then the ball snapped, and maybe it switches to a cover three, two different linebackers drop into weird little zones, and Trask was reading everyone perfectly. Dan was also calling great plays into them. The second half, there were several sequences, which we're going to talk about, where it was actually the opposite. Dan called plays right into Tennessee's shift. And I'll give Tennessee some credit. If there's one thing they did well, it was in the second half, they called a couple of good shifts, which could have been luck because they were changing a lot. But the best part about this was Trask never once was actually confused. And we're going to talk about that too. But the second half, gamesmanship did go on. Tennessee did not just slay on and die. They definitely tried something different. They threw everything they had at, at um, Trask afterwards. And after the game, Pruitt actually said, Alan, he said, you know, we, we threw a lot of complicated looks at Trask. We should have thrown more, but we, we couldn't. Our guys are too young to develop more. And that tells you a lot about a guy who hasn't played since his freshman year of high school. He took everything you gave him and he annihilated it. And the opposing coach is basically saying there was nothing else we could have even gone to. We couldn't have taught that much stuff in one week. And that's an important thing if you're kind of thinking, well, Trask is fluky or he's a gunslinger. He's very, very good at reading, as we indicated on film. That's a big deal. All right, let's talk about where we struggled for a second here. Obviously, we struggled a little bit in the red zone because of our cutesy conservative nature. We kind of clean it up as time went on. That's going to be something to watch in the future, especially in these big, close games against Auburn. Are we willing to trust our quarterback, Chef Trask, if you will, to cook up something good and score? Are we going to go back to the tried and true stuff that a lot of teams know we like to do? Keep an eye on that one. But really, the big storyline here, and there's one, is our run game. Indeed. It was atrocious. When you're passing like we're passing— when you're getting favorable fronts to run again like we're getting and you can't run the football, every single possible alarm bell in your head should be going off, and rightfully so. How bad is it, Alan, that our run game struggled like this was such a advantage with the way that Tennessee had to play against our pass game? It's so frustrating. Uh, and watching the film, seeing it from the end zone camera, you can it really highlights this, that our offensive linemen are struggling every which way. And not in a... You expect younger guys to struggle in pass protection where somebody's doing something exotic. They're sending weird blitzers. They're doing strange stunts. Oh, bad communication because we're new. They're struggling with some of the basics and run blocking. Uh, some of this is technical where they're not sliding to the right spot. They're taking the wrong guy. And some of it, I'm not super hopeful they're going to clean up. Because it's some of the physicality and maybe talent-wise that I don't know that they can do. Now, I love what John Hevesy has put out on the field the last couple of years in improving offensive lines. So I'm not without hope. But it's not going to be a quick fix. We're not going to show up against Towson. Oh, we just ironed out some of these technical details. Like Maybe I hoped we would at the beginning of the season. It's going to be a long, <laughs> a long journey with that. Um, there's not a lot of holes, and if there are, they're getting plugged quickly. And you know, I they tried stuff. They put they put um, Garage in at left tackle and moved Forsyth to right tackle. They put Garage at left guard. None of it really all that effective. Maybe marginally so. I think they still need to continue tweaking. So some guy looks great on one play, looks terrible on the next. So there's a lot of variance in their play. And I even called for, hey, let's run Davis and Pierce earlier in the game. 
Let's see what they can do. Pirine doesn't look like he is maybe the best fit for this particular circumstance. They didn't have all that much more success. Maybe marginally better. So frustrating that we're not able to run the ball, even into situations that are very fable, which I don't know. The, the blocking schemes are right. It The holes could be there, and they're not there. So I don't know if we're going to see any real movement unless something dramatic happens. Yeah, and you're hitting the nail on the head. And when we talk about talent on the offensive line when it comes to run blocking, it's actually very simple. You're talking about two things, footwork and power. And while our footwork is not all that bad, we have virtually no power as an offensive line. And, and as you mentioned on film, the first second we block is almost always pretty good if we're in an advantaged front, right, which is what you dream of. And then our guys have no ability to drive their guy off that spot or even to hold it. So if you're the running back, you look, you see a hole, you take a step towards it, the defensive lineman just walks right into it. There's just zero power of really any. I can't, I can't single out one lineman that can chuck somebody and hold them off the hole. And so you've got linebackers that are freely able to read the hole and slide right in without any kind of opposition. There's no, there's no ability to get that drive. I don't see that changing as we face better fronts. That's going to be a problem for us. Like you mentioned, Alan, what Hevesy has done is he's cleaned up a lot of the issues and errors. Against Tennessee, we blocked the right guys. We had the right angles. We had the right start positions. But if you can't hold your block, that comes down to a talent issue. It comes down to an ability issue. And you can only take that so far. So if you're if you're listening, thinking, well, maybe the O-line has hope. Maybe we're going to wind up being able to block these better defensive lines. You should let that go. Are we going to find ways to scheme, to help, to play into our weaknesses? Yes. But this is not going to become an O-line that can really block. I think P. Ryan is, is not the right back for this kind of line. You almost need a guy who's going to just come downhill, hit the first holy seas as hard as he possibly can. Because you can't even trust your vision. Because let's say you go into the hole on the right side. You see a cutback on the left. By the time you cut back, someone else fills it. Which is, which is unnerving. I think it is slowing P. Ryan down. For those of you that are saying P. Ryan looks slow... When you watch the film, it's kind of obvious why. He's trying to find a hole. It's slowing him down. I think I think there's a reason to play Pierce more in this role because he does, if he gets ahead of steam going, carry people further. He seems to be like a guy who could do that. There's a lot going on here, but in the game, I felt like, oh my gosh, P. Ryan's got to get out of there. He's really not strong. On the film, you're saying, I see what's going on. It's hard to fault a lot of what's happening. But I would, I would advocate, Alan, for more Pierce time. Because it seems like we're sure. moving in the direction where send the battering ram guy into whatever hole exists there and try to get four yards because the goal of getting 10 yards is almost never going to happen. Well, even Malik Davis from two years ago would be an interesting guy to use in this scenario because maybe just speed to the point of pa- attack, beating a guy around the end. He doesn't look like the same guy yet. I don't think he's all the way back. The fumbling is not going to help him get more touches. Hopefully, he could be a guy by the end of the year who's – more useful for us, but I would like to see more Pierce. And again, it's not a huge knock on Pierre. Pierre is a solid back. You put him in a favorable situation, he'll make you pay. Or even maybe an average situation. This is a below average situation. I don't know. He's the kind of elite talent that can just overcome those obstacles. So not to disparage him. I mean, that's not, it's hard to ask of anybody. So the run game, if it improves, I think will be, either swapping out some guys, maybe some of these freshmen will get them up to speed enough or they'll get in shape enough. So it's either going to have to be a personnel change, a schematic change. I don't think we'll be able to line up those same five guys and get the kind of results we want. 
Yeah, that's a good point there. And and, and again, this is like a Barry Sanders line. Like you got to be Barry Sanders from behind this line where you're super shifty. That's the ideal kind of guy. We don't have that guy. We also don't have like a Darren Sproles guy, which would fit the offense we could run with Trask. Piran can catch passes, but it doesn't make guys miss. So we don't we don't have Terry Cohen. We don't have like that kind of guy. So we're kind of in this weird spot with our running game where I think you're just trying to push your average run per play a little higher because that will change things. I think they're married to P. Ryan because of all the stuff he does so well. He's such a good pass blocker. He's a very competent receiver. I don't see Pierce getting more carries per se because of how they've handled things, although I think it's warranted, and we'll talk a little bit about that and how we can improve. All right, play calling away into points. I really only have one note here, Alan, from the film. Nothing even tricky, but we did run a really nice 2v1 on the safety. And you guys have heard me talk about this a lot. I love 2 on 1 in the safety. We did it only one time in this game, and it was a little unconventional. They tried to keep robbing. And when I say rob, you bring your safety down into those middle routes to pick them off. They tried it a lot. And we caught them perfectly on the post pattern to swing the back of the end zone. The reason that occurred is Pitts ran like a 14-yard or so hitch route. And the safety came right down to pick that off. And that's right in Kyle Trask's vision. He's just two on one in that read. All he's doing is looking at that safety. Safety backs up. He throws the ball to Pitts. Safety comes down. Touchdown to, um, to Swain, which he threw perfectly. Well executed, absolutely excellent pass, beautiful play, easy touchdown. I love that the most. I, I loved think, it. I think two on one in the back end is the best way to play football. It stretches the field vertically. A really nice play there. Very happy to see that. Outside of that, nothing tricky that we had to do. And again, this is a testament to reaching a higher level of football. Why in the NFL, Allen, do you not see a lot of trick plays? Because you really can't run them. Because the optimal play is to use your elite players to know what they're doing to gain a more consistent average play PR than all your trick plays. And I think that's part of what's exciting about what we saw this past weekend is we didn't need all the gadgety plays. We actually had a quarterback who could just beat their defense. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect. But it was there. And with that, let's talk about Trask, the good let's and the it. bad. He was 20 of 28 for 293, just a hair trigger shy of 300. Two touchdowns and two picks. And I'll give you the quick overview here. Uh, most of his incompletions actually came from a lack of time. He had very few incompletions where it was like he looked around and threw a bad pass, right? Had a bad ball, just a couple of those. He continued to prove the question we asked last week is, can he keep doing this? Is this kind of fluky? No. He's a phenomenal pre-snap reader of defenses. He's excellent at going where the numbers are on his side. Um, his pre- and post-snap reads are phenomenal. I mean, top level. If you watch him compared to other quarterbacks... He might be ahead of just about everyone in college football with his pre and post snap reading. It's definitely his best skill. Uh, his footwork in the in the pocket's really really good. He can throw the ball from a wide variety of angles with regards to his body. He's got a lot of poise back there, and his timing continues to be great. A question we kept getting, Allen, was his arm strength. That first throw he throws to Grimes, right? The fifty yard pass to Grimes. It's off his back foot with a guy coming in his face, and he throws at fifty yards. Go into your backyard and see if you're capable of doing something like that. Keep in mind, Franks has superhuman arm strength. Right, it's a bad comparison. Even for an NFL quarterback. But to throw that ball 50, and also, that's how you're coached. That safety or corner was entirely turned around not looking. You want to give your receiver a chance to make that play because technically there's no defender if the guy's back is turned. Really, really smart play. I have no problem with that throw. If you're wondering why he didn't throw it 75 yards, guy's in his face. But the fact he threw it recognizes what he's really doing. So... All the stuff you'd say technique-wise, Allen, on a quarterback, like we've seen, is strong. And we talked about that last week. That's why it's repeatable. That's why Allen and I come on the podcast and confidently say, this guy is going to continue to do these things well. 
This is not magic. It's not luck. It's not a surprise. Those things he will do well. Now we have to see, can he keep doing things well each week when teams craft new game plans for him? But out of the gate, if you're grading all the things you want a quarterback to do, it's just sky high for him. And that's not because I love guys who throw the ball or I love this stuff. He's very, very good at those skills. He's worked very hard to get there, and it's clearly evident and on display. That's what you're seeing when you're watching him operate. In fact, so much so that Danny Warfel texts me during the game. This is so much fun to watch this guy play. He's making quick decisions. He knows what he's doing. He's reading the whole field. Again, it's this is not a mirage. This guy's really good at that. He's really, really good at that. And it's not just because I'm championing him that I'm saying that. The second it goes south, I'll tell you. I promise. One of the reasons that we are so psyched about the middle of the field, you heard a lot of people talk about it. Um, James just said there's only been three quarterbacks who've done it effectively. It's because there's it's more complicated. There's more people who could affect what you're doing. There's more people who are maybe would come from angles that you weren't expecting. That's why Felipe was often hesitant, and maybe rightly so. If he didn't have a good read in the defense, it's a bad idea to throw the ball in the middle of the field. Someone's going to come from a place where you don't know where they are and pick the ball off, go the other way. That's why the sideline is a nice little barrier for you. You know no one's coming from your – if you're throwing to the left, no one's coming from the left to go get the ball. Here's what the beautiful thing about Trask in the middle of the field is he's efficient – in his reads and his movement. A lot of these throws have to come when he throws them. If you delay too long, it's not going to be there. You're going to slide the guy in. This is like the old Treon play, right? You wait too long, all of a sudden the guy's on the sideline. You can't throw it to him anymore. And a lot of times that middle of the field is not even technically Trask's first read, but he's getting to it so effectively and efficiently that the ball is still there when it should be. So if you watch Felipe, would he would go through some of these reads, by the time he would get to that third read, if he didn't do it, it's so late that that thing is no longer available as an option. Love that from Trask. It feels so confident in like that he's going to run the right play and make the right throw that you're just like, yeah, call him up. What you know, ring it up every time. And so you saw so much of our offense as you know, people say east-west, throwing towards the sideline, bubble screens. Those are still good, effective plays. We did a couple of them in the game. You still want to do that. You want to stretch the defense east-west and north-south. We've only really been able to stretch them effectively east-west. North-south was only rarely in very specific scenarios. In this case, the defense has to defend all of the field in the passing game, and that's very difficult. Yeah, and that's the key, and that's what we keep talking about, all, all these all these years, like, what's my philosophy? It's not throw the ball 5,000 times. And in fact, I think I saw somebody on Reddit say, uh, James just really likes Steve Spurrier offense and wants to gunsling it. I actually don't like Steve Spurrier's offense. I liked it back then, but if I was coaching now, I don't like it at all. It's a timing offense. It's entirely the antithesis of what I like in an offense, which is a complicated read-based system. So we could get into that one day, but that's actually not it at all. In fact, what I like is what Trask does well. He's a cerebral quarterback who can who can undress a defense if he can accurately diagnose what they're in. And now that we can attack the whole field, Allen, it creates some serious problems, which in theory would open the run game if we can get some pieces right. So there's some hope because now we have a chance we did not have before under Franks, and that's a big deal. Uh, the best throw, you asked me this before the show, I want to talk about the best throw. For me, the best throw Trask had, this is an incredible throw, is to Freddie Swain. It was like a 20-yard dig route, uh, second quarter, two minutes or so left. 
and and he's 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 throwing it over a linebacker and underneath the safety as there's a guy falling at his feet. It's just an incredible, incredible throw. Swing kind of goes down low to get it. An unbelievably high level throw to grass. That's where the space is throw after he'd already read two other receivers routes. That is that is way high level for a guy who's played all of you know one or two games in six years. Great, great stuff. I loved that throw. I watched like 15 times in a row because you just don't see college quarterbacks make that throw very often. It's really, really a great throw. What was the throw you saw that you liked? Well, I'm going to actually, so I was going to say something along those lines. Let me just pivot and go, this is more an emotional favorite. You've already talked about it. The touchdown to Swain sitting there. I was, you know, pretty close to the field on that side of the field in the end zone. And when he throws that ball, I love that's such a beautiful post pass post pattern and a completed pass is one of the more beautiful things in football to see him deliver that ball on time into space and Swain just be as open as he was, you know, somebody was defending him. No one fell down. He wasn't running free. It just, the, uh, I don't know, the positive feeling I got from watching that happen and being like, wow, that was amazing. We've, we've had touchdown passes, but just the culmination of all those things in that scenario was beautiful. It wasn't his most complicated or most difficult throw of the day by any means, but it was probably my favorite. There were looking back on film, there was a lot of moments um, where he the degree of difficulty on that throw was uh, sneakily high. Um, so he excelled even when it wasn't in optimal situations. Yeah, it did. And there's two two more highlights before we get into his struggles. One, he's also good at reading in the run game. So that, that first drive, when he kept the zone read, when the Tennessee defender decided this guy's never going to run the ball, and he ran it for eight yards, is all you need. For the rest of the game, whenever he faked that handoff, those Tennessee defenders did not just come in and attempt at the running back. He's helping the run game by doing things like that. And one of my other favorite plays, and this play was a doozy, was against the blitz. They ran a corner blitz and a linebacker blitz right in his face. And he immediately pulls the ball out of that run fake and throws it right to where they blitz. We pick up like 10 yards on a little screen. He is so fast to read what's going on. And I want to keep highlighting that. Yes, I'm gushing about this. Yes, those of you that think I'm a negative Nancy, you can see that I'm not. No, I'm not in love with Trask. I'm in love with the skills that you see. And you can watch a lot of college quarterbacks. And what he's doing read-wise, take this if you take nothing else, is extremely high level. You don't see this kind of reading from college quarterbacks very often. You might see other things they dazzle with, but this kind of ability to read, very, very high. It would not surprise me if Traska's career doesn't wind up in the NFL or somewhere else, but if he wanted to become a coach of some sort, he clearly has the acumen of understanding what's going on with the chess pieces on the field. Of course, we love that here in the podcast booth. We love watching on the field. Let's talk about the struggles. Yeah, because he wasn't without any blemishes on the field. Three turnovers. That's funny that you know, two picks and a fumble would normally mar a performance. I don't know that most quarterbacks could overcome that, but he was so electric when he was on. Electric's not even the right word because he's not he's not Johnny Manziel out there, but he's so brutally efficient. That's really fun. So let's talk about the fumble first. Um, you know, has some pressure, loses the ball. Um, wasn't an egregious thing. But I do think the coaches will probably talk to him about his ball security when he's feeling pressure, that he probably need to tuck that a little tighter. Um, thoughts on that? 
Yeah, in person, I thought that exactly. I watched the replay on the Jumbotron and thought, wow, he, he really needed to recognize that was coming. When you watch it in real time, you know, we have... Kroll does a nice job of actually pushing his... They blitz on the side. Kroll does a perfect adjustment. And Kroll, by the way, just for a, title, a little piece on Kroll, Kroll played a lot this game. He did okay. He did okay. He's handling the blitz really well, which is much better than what Pitts does. He's not road grading guys out of the way. No. And he's just too slow to be a competent pass offering when they assign a man to him. Interesting to see how we continually utilize him. But he's definitely an adequate blocker. So he kind of sheds his guy out on the outside. Trask correctly feels that interior pressure slides left, right? This all happens very fast. In that moment, Trask was about to load up to throw the only receiver he could have thrown to, which was this drag route coming across, which was there, correctly chooses not to throw that pass because now he's turning off angle, feels the pressure. Kind of in an unlucky situation as the ball is kind of coming back down, gets hit on the way down. I'm not sure what options he would have had other than just duck right away and take a sack. So upon watching it on film from the different angles, I felt better about it than I did when I watched it happen in the stadium. It felt a lot more bang-bang then it looked in slow motion in the stadium thinking, oh my gosh, he had forever. He didn't really. It was very, very quick. Well, here's the interesting thing. I'll give credit to David Wonderlook for pointing this out on Twitter. Uh, there's a very similar play. Tennessee does something different, but it's a similar play on our end where it's the you know inside seam to Copeland. And Copeland's the receiver on this one. If you watch the previous play, Copeland comes out as a break, looks back at Trask, and Trask knows he's available to, as a receiver. Now, I don't know all the reads or what has to happen. Maybe Copeland's not really the primary guy unless Tennessee does something. And on this time, Copeland is not looking back at him. And I think that's what happens is he goes to throw to Copeland. Copeland's not even looking. I got to eat it. And then doesn't quite you know, hold on to the ball as tightly as maybe you would want him to. But yeah, not necessarily an egregious, egregious mistake. No, so I would chalk that up as if we're grading that one. That fumble is very understandable when you watch it on film. The quick read, he reads the right side of the field first. He then comes to the proper drag outlet and then recognizes he doesn't have time to throw that because he feels the pressure is actually attempting to put the ball away and does not. So for that one, I think you look on a film and go, you know what, actually, I wouldn't really tell you to change a thing. I don't think you did anything wrong there. You weren't sitting in there forever and being loose with the ball. That just happens sometimes in football. So that's let's call that a an understandable turnover for the first one. Let's, right. look at, let's look at the INTs. Yes, which really stalled out our third quarter momentum. If you were to talk about should we have scored points, if we don't have these interceptions, maybe we're, we're above 50 because of the accelerated rate of the game. Uh, the first one to crawl. Uh, third and 13, a corner. Guy cuts underneath crawl. How did you feel about this? Was this a bad decision or a bad throw? Well, this one was exactly what I thought it was in person and on film. Uh, it, it felt even better on film. So we're running a corner route to Kroll against their cover two defense. Corner is a good route against a cover two, except it's not going to be in this case, which we'll talk about why. Uh, it's also third and 13, and we're on, I think, like the 33-yard line. So you're in field goal range. Um, two curious things go on here. So one, there's not a check down route, which is confusing pass design. There's no outlet. So what are you going to do? He could have run on this one. He could have looked at Kroll. No one else was open on the play. And then he decided to run. That's possible. Instead, I think because he's a little bit of a gunslinger, he decides, well, it's third and 13. I'm on the 33-yard line. I could fit this ball in there, right? The problem I have with this one, Alan, is two-part. One, it's a really bad play design. So I'm going to fault the coaching staff, one. Two, Trask played into the really bad play design 
by taking the side of the field he should have gone to, he knew that throw was going to be super tough and trying it anyway. But he was not fooled in any way, shape, or form. This was not like, oops, surprise, they got me. He knew he was going to get that guy. He knew he was going to get the underneath nickelback chasing Kroll. He knew that. And he knew that cover two safety, who had nobody occupying him, was going to actually be able to cover a corner route because there was no other responsibility he had. We didn't run a single other route to challenge him. So he knows that. He reads that. And he goes for it. Now That's why I'm saying horrible throw. Third and 13 from the 33. No other option. It's not a horrible throw. You shouldn't take it. However, Trask with better route combinations wouldn't make that throw. So let's look at it that way, right? So it's kind of like, uh, I'm kind of okay on this. I think Dan Mullen was very positive on these. And that's right. part of the reason why. Is as a coach, you say, like we'd say with Franks or other guys, you'd say, there were two other guys open. This is the worst possible place to throw this ball. That was actually the best place to probably throw that ball. You probably shouldn't have thrown it at all. But again, I want to fault the play design there. Bad play design of that defense. There's lots of things you could have done. You could have sent a go route of the safety to occupy him. You could have gotten Kroll one-on-one with no help defender. You could have done many different things than what we did there. Um, so that one, I'm going to say I'm fine with it. I would have liked to have seen a different play. Had there been a check down guy or something else, you could have faulted him much, much more. Should he have escaped out and run? Yes. So should he have thrown it? No. Is it really understandable why he did it on third and 13? Yes. Would I like to see the coaching staff not call something similar again in the future? Yes. So all those things are true. I think there's ways to improve for everyone. Right. This is not a disheartening interception. The, when I talked about last week, Trask is a gunslinger. This is the throw that I mean. And like you gave a lot of caveats that I think is important that he actually didn't wasn't as risky as I thought he might be. But this is a situation he's not going to be necessarily patient. I don't know if he has the reps that even I would expect him to be. But he threw that into an almost impossible window and angle and didn't throw it. Even if you're going to throw that, I would love to see him throw it the only person who's even maybe going to catch it is Kroll. That's what a Tom Brady, who's at the highest level of this, would have done in that situation where you haven't given him a lot of outs. Okay, if I'm going to throw this, I'm not going to let this guy cut underneath. Uh, it was a it was a poor choice in a poor situation, and it wasn't a great throw either. But that's not – it would have been an uh, impossible throw to make it actually a completed pass. So there wasn't like a, well, if he just puts a little more air or throws a little more juice, it the guy's cutting underneath, it was a bad choice, bad throw. But in terms of, you know, quote unquote, he's a gunslinger, this was maybe the best version of that. Oh, yeah, and the execution was actually great because they're in the cover too. He takes a snap. He actually looks off the safety. He does not stare right at Kroll. He looks for a second. Then he goes to Kroll. Then he throws it. The timing is right. Problem is that ball needed more velocity, needed to be thrown a touch earlier, and had to be thrown, you know, a little more outside the boundary. And that's the gunslinger mentality is, again, he knew. That was not a surprise. He was not surprised that he had a trail defender and he had an overtop defender. He knew he was going to get both an underneath and overtop defender, and he tried to do it anyway. Part of that I love. (laughs) I like it a lot more, Alan, when that was actually the best choice if he was going to throw the ball. Again, he shouldn't have thrown it, but that's better, right? If you're choosing to do that over something else, like Brett Favre would often do because he can make that throw, that's when you really scratch your head. Also, if the score is 10-3 to at this point in time, I like it a lot less. Again, I don't like it. I'm not defending it. But I think if you're looking at it, it's important to look at all the factors to evaluate what went into that. And I think it is a big reason why Dan said, don't mind that pick. Makes sense. All right, now let's look at this other one. This one's a little worse. Again, more interesting than you may think it is. So first and 10... 
already bad, right? Don't throw a pick on first and 10 to Grimes. Very interesting on film. So we wind up running, again, another poor route combination here against Tennessee's cover one. What makes it interesting is Tennessee's safety lines up on the left hash. So we have two receivers left, one receiver, which is Grimes to the right. Tennessee's safety on the left hash. So basically it looks like there's three on two on that side and one on one on the right side. Now Trask knows for sure it's going to wind up being cover one, which is one high safety. He knows this. He takes a snap, he drops back, he looks left, he freezes the safety, everything is perfect. Grimes beats his man with an inside release on this little kind of skinny post route. Then Trask goes for the throw. All of that would be great, except for the fact, Alan, that the spacing is inexplicable to me. Grimes lines up on this play about three yards off of our right tackle. Why in a cover one, he's not lined up outside the numbers where you can threaten that skinny post route where the safety cannot get to it is beyond me. I really don't understand the route there at all. And again, that's not Trask's fault. This is first down. So what happens? If I'm the quarterback, my guy's in tight. They're not giving me an ability to push him outside the numbers to increase my leverage against that safety. I've got to look up the field and I've got to eat that. He had nowhere else to go. So again, he chose the right guy. That's a hero throw there with a safety that's not very far away. He demonstrated good arm strength to get it there. It actually hit Grimes in the hands. This is a much worse pick than Pitts though, because the game was still kind of hanging here and it's first down. If he just simply says, yeah, I don't like that. I'm going to just run, take a yard, take a two yard loss. If I live to fight another day, much better. But yet, Alan, here I am again. There's no check down on this play. So there isn't a safety valve. Again, we talked a lot about play designing for a passing quarterback. A lot of this stuff with Dan, you'd see was kind of like we're taking a home run shot now with my Frank's quarterback, and this is the home run shot. I think they're, I think the coaches need to look themselves in the mirror and make sure that they're always leaving a passing quarterback with a check down. You got to do it. That's quarterbacking 101. Both those picks came with no check down. So it's harder to fault the guy. Not a good pass. You can't throw it. But basically, neither of them are like, oh, those were horrible. The first on a right. 10 was worse because it's first on a 10. And you got to just go outside yourself and not do it. But it's hard also to expect a guy to do that. So again, coaching guy for success, knowing he's a little bit of a gunslinger. I wow. love it. I love the aggressiveness, actually. There was a previous play uh, where Grimes just beats his man out of the slot. And I Franks threw another pass that, or excuse me, tries to another pass that was a successful, probably his first read. They probably showed him, hey, Grimes was toasted this guy. Now, this wasn't the same coverage, probably, and it wasn't the same situation. It wasn't the same spot of the field. So I like the aggressiveness. If you've And Grimes almost makes this play, despite the subpar conditions of it. And this is actually the worst possible outcome. I think nine times out of ten, this is going to be an incomplete pass if, if Grimes doesn't catch it. Now, the safety made a fantastic play on the ball to get there, and then recover and intercept it, diving into the end zone. So the interception was like, wow, I can't believe that's the way it went. Um, but if you're going to be super aggressive, some bad things are going to happen. You will have some negative plays. So I don't want him to take away his aggressiveness. And I like that he sees that and goes for it. He doesn't hesitate. Again, we said he's going to throw some picks. He did throw some picks. So I don't expect that to stop. I I don't think you can play the type of game that he's going to do at the speed he's going to play it and not go, man, if I would have had that back, I would have done it like this. Um, or I would have been slightly less aggressive. But if you take all the aggressiveness out of his game, you're not going to get these big chunk plays. 
So I don't want to kill him on either of those. You know, again, against a in a bigger game too, against an Auburn LSU where the margin of error is zero, you have to tell him you cannot do it. And I don't know. That's a that's a coaching balance to say be aggressive, but take it down by one tenth. Right, that is really, really hard. Well, the we don't, we don't even know, Alan, if we need to do that yet. Per not se. necessarily, because it's twenty-four to three at this time. Right, it's an interesting knockout punch. Again, I'm not excusing these picks. Let's not confuse that. But I think if you're looking at it as a coach, these are phenomenal picks to have on film. Trash seems to be a quick learner. He's already illustrating. He's smart, and like you said, you hope this guy understands enough situationally of when that risk reward curve grows and shrinks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, again, first and 10 is worse than third and 13. But I think I think if the pass combinations are correct, maybe neither of these happen. And that, to me, is a home run because as a coach, you can fix that. That's actually something you can fix right now, right? And that's the beauty of this. So we, we're going to keep saying that he is a gunslinger. He's aggressive. And, in fact, let's talk about the best thing that happens. The next pass Trask throws, do you know what it is? It's the bomb to Copeland. Sticks him right on the hands. That's why, if you're going to say, why does James like a gunslinger? That's what it takes to win championships. Quarterbacks have to be able to come back from bad plays. I love They're that. They're going to happen no matter who you are. He gets right back in there and drops a dime on a bomb to Copeland. That's the kind of mindset you have got to have. Because if you get afraid, like you said, Alan, and you don't want to throw the deep ball anymore, or you don't want to give your receiver a chance to play, it's not good. And then lastly, as a Trask comment, Trask and his aggressiveness with the receivers picks not only the whole team up, the defense gets picked up. The offense gets picked up. The coaches get picked up. The the picks, the turnovers don't hurt as bad. Because when you're giving your guy a chance to make a play, guys are rallied around you. That's what they want, right? And so those are like, again, the best of the turnovers. You don't want them. Certainly, you're not trying to get them. But encouraging. We didn't know what we were going to see. We could have seen him throwing right to certain linebackers, right to guys that are uncovered, like they threw one to Marco Wilson. None of that happened. So all in all, very encouraging, I think, with regards to Trask. We feel great. We've talked about the O-line, Allen. Uh, excellent work on the pass blocking. That's helpful. Let's talk about Emery for a few seconds and then ways we can improve. So Emery, for me, Allen, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. We might differ. That's the return to what we're going to call Urban Meyer 1.0 football, east-west football. A lot of window dressing so you can run. You can predict exactly what we're going to do. As soon as Tennessee spread out to cover our four and five wide, we had a plus one advantage in the box. Emery runs the ball. And it works. It can work really well in those circumstances. I've never argued that Dan's Mullen, Dan Mullen's offense can't work in these regards. It can. I don't like it stylistically. I think it makes it hard to win titles, especially in the modern day. And that's my big take. Modern day defenses are not the ones from 06, 07, and 08. They're much faster at the linebacker position. The nickels are much more aggressive at run stopping. It's a different world that we live in. Emery's game seems limited to me. We're not getting to evaluate a lot of his passing, so I don't want to start saying what his pocket presence and passing looks like. But he doesn't look like Allen. He's ready to compete at well, the SEC level. Well, to do it yet, at least. And they're not. But right now, you'd say it doesn't look like he's ready to compete at that level yet. It doesn't look like a guy that's ready for that. Could he be useful in packages? I think so. He's extremely good at running the zone read. He holds onto the ball very, very well. He reads that very, very well. He's quick enough to get out of there. A lot of those run plays were bigger because he held the linebackers for a long time before he either chose to keep it himself or pass it. There's things he does well in that game, which is why Mullen likes him. I'm just going to continue to question the amount of investment we're putting into him because I'm going to give you this big thought. If Trask is your guy and he makes it into next year and Trask is your guy for next year, 
it's highly likely that Emory Jones never plays at Florida as a starting quarterback because then you're going to either have Anthony Richardson, maybe a transfer, who knows what the situation looks like, right? It's unlikely, though. I don't know how much investment you want to give a guy because if it goes to Emory this year, here's what I'm thinking, Alan. We're not winning anything anyway. If it goes to him anyway, we're not winning the SEC. We're probably not winning the SEC as it is. Let's not get crazy. I'm not saying our ceiling is like, oh, now we're going to beat everybody. But there's a world where we could. I think with Emory, there's no world where we're going to wind up beating LSU, Georgia, enough of those people to get into the SEC title. I just to me, it's like, whatever, we go to next season, right? That's why I question how much we're going to invest in him versus him being a package guy. That's how I'm thinking about it versus let's get Emory ready in case Trask goes down. Because if that happens, forget about it. The season's going to be a wash anyway. I, I do hear that. That's a that's a high level statement. I, but if you do think that Emory could be the type of guy who could be effective in all phases of the game, right? So a, a one-dimensional Dan Mullen kind of guy would be Nick Fitzgerald, right? Superior runner, right? All, everything Dan is looking for in a runner. Actually, you probably take him out of a lab. He's big. He's tough. He's way faster than you think he's going to be. He's sudden for a guy his size. Now, Nick Fitzgerald cannot throw the ball with any kind of timing, accuracy, precision, Right. So that's the downfall. Right. So the problem with a little bit of this kind of uh, system is to be effective at all phases of the game. You need like an Uber Minch. You need like Cam Newton with Tom Brady's like accuracy. Well, of course, if you have that person, anything you run is going to be effective. And then he will take advantage of every mismatch possible. Now, I, as you said, Dan tends to maybe favor a lower risk strategy, or if you have a quarterback who is competent running, you can make things very simple for him and you can still be very effective. Maybe he sees Emory as a guy who can do the kind of passing concepts that we would hope for out of this offense. And he sees him as valuable. Again, we're not seeing that in the game. He's not dropping him back and letting him read the field. Maybe he's not ready for that yet. So we're not going to ask him to embarrass himself out there in the swamp in front of everybody. Correct. And that's why we have to continue to kind of withhold uh, our final judgment. As we always say, you have to get enough on a quarterback before you, you put the, this is who he is kind of guy. Uh, okay. Ways to improve a new category. We're going to add each week, some ways that Alan and I think we can improve. Alan hasn't even seen all these yet. So I kind of did this on purpose. So you could disagree or agree. Now we're putting our coaching hat on. If I'm coach, I'm coming in the next week. I'm telling you what I'm going to do on offense, more Trask, less Emery. The only time I may play Emery is a couple of gadget plays here and there. I like what you said. I put him on the field with Trask. I'm not moving Trask out to the Wildcat person. I might go with two running back backfield, one of them being Emery. Both of them can throw, line up in a pistol. That has more merit to me than swapping in and out because defenses immediately adjust to stop Emery. So I don't think you get the advantage you maybe want against the better teams. So more Trask, less Emery. That's me. Don't be cutesy in the red zone, which I think we more or less kind of eliminated that, but we're going to see what happens when games get tight. Don't be cutesy on fourth down either with Trask. If you're going to go on for on a fourth down, let's run some regular plays. Attack more vertically, right? Let's try to hit more of those vertical spread the field two-on-ones. Trask is excellent at reading them and relentlessly attack these favorable matchups. We did it at times. We would just basically run a matchup offense. It was pits versus somebody. And other times we were a little bit more... East-West bubble screeny, kind of some of the stuff we did, right? So let's relentlessly do that. And let's not be afraid to use four and five receiver sets, Alan, in the quick game. 
Here's a misnomer about football. If you think, well, if the O-line's not super great at stopping a blitz or somebody coming at me, if I'm in four or five wide sets, how could I ever do it? Well, because it's going to be what's called a zero drop game. You take the snap and you basically throw the ball in less than one second before the pressure gets to you with a guy like Trask who reads so well and guys like Grimes and Jefferson who get off the ball so well. It's actually a very powerful concept to slow a team's defensive line down. So I'd like to see us go to more of that. I'd like to see Pierce get more carries early on. So I'd add something to compare to P. Ryan. I'd like to have that on film from a coach. I want to know what that looks like. And lastly, and this is kind of a funny one, a couple times a game we keep doing this, Alan, we talked about before. We run a trips formation where one of our guys stands still for like a full second. I've still yet to figure out what the purpose of this is. It's easy to watch how teams defend it. I, I can't, I've tried everything in my head, my chalkboard mind to say, well, this is what they're trying to get out of this. It's really weird to me. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, we did it really effectively. Kentucky, we abused them with it. It's just, it just doesn't make any like long-term real sense. It's like a gadget that works against an inferior team. I don't know. I want to sit down with Dan and be like, what are you trying to achieve? Because teams against the trips formation, they have certain ways they play them. Inside, outside, high, low, under, man, chuck, you know, pull out. And there's, there's different ways they could do it. I don't know what the waiting does. He's got to have a reason why he does it. It's just interesting. Well, it was very effective against Kentucky that cleared them out. And Van Jefferson would be standing there with no one 15 yards away from him. So I can see why they kept wanting to go back to it. It does stall out the play, though. It's it Because I think Tennessee saw that and said, hey, if this guy just waits, he's going to do this. Just run over here with him. So it was never even close to open. I, I wouldn't, I'd be surprised if that one just went out the window. I like all of those suggestions. The four and five wide is really interesting to me. Now, again, if you have a dominant defensive line like Auburn, who's going to whip you quickly, you can get your quarterback destroyed. Because if they do something to confuse you initially or a play takes slightly longer to develop, you're in a world of hurt. There's nobody, there's no safety valves, there's nobody to pick it up. There's. N- but if teams are blitzing you out of that, you can see it coming from a mile away. There's a lot of benefits that I, w- I wouldn't mind seeing us explore that. Um, there's definitely some pros there. Agree with the Pierce stuff. Yeah, the Emory stuff is interesting. I think he's obviously going to play against Towson. We'll get to that. But against a team like Auburn, I wouldn't mind not seeing him unless we have a very particular use for him and they've schemed it up and practiced it and Auburn won't know what's coming. That's very Auburn to do against them. All right, are you ready to talk about the defense? I'm ready. This is, that okay. was a great discussion on offense. Yes, but I love it. Hopefully we satisfied every itch you guys had. We knew we got so many questions on this. We want to spend a lot of time to talk about kind of the metamorphosis we're all witnessing. So now on defense, Let me ask you the simpler story. Yes, so obviously if you're going to hold an SEC opponent to three points and cause multiple turnovers, that is a great performance, right? I Just on the baseline, we got to say – we're going to critique some stuff. That's a fantastic performance. Uh, let me ask you just to situate this for us. Do you feel like our defense really excelled or Tennessee is was a hot mess on offense? If I had to scale that out, I'm going to say I allocate that equally. Tennessee's hot messness contributed significantly to us looking better than we actually were. We also contributed to Tennessee looking like a hot mess. So both of those worked together, I would say. We weren't so dominant that if you could imagine a world where Tennessee was sound, that we were going to do what we did. And you also can't imagine a world where Tennessee was so sound that we weren't going to have good plays against them anyway. Yeah, it's funny. I was just listening back to a particular portion of the podcast to figure out what scores we predicted. And I said something like, 
I'm not afraid of Garantano. Our defense was also not afraid of Garantano. We dared him to beat us, and he could not do it. Um, so tough day for him. I think David Reese said last year their quarterback, whatever his number is, I forget, number two or whatever, didn't want – basically said something like he didn't want to be out there anymore or he had had enough. I think he had enough again today uh, or on Saturday because he looked defeated by the end of the game. Okay, UT only had 160 yards passing, only 88 rushing, 4 of 13 on third down. We had four sacks, three picks. Marco Wilson, responsible-ish for two. And, of course, they had a fumble. What were we trying to do against them? How do we limit them? We talked about controlling line of scrimmage and that we'd play a lot more true 3-4. We can say for the first time on the pod, Alan, that our true 3-4 was very effective. Typically, it's been a weakness for us. We were fantastically effective with a true 3-4 for the first time ever. In fact, we played a lot of it because of that. So much so that we never felt like we had to go to the 5-2. When we go to the 5-2, it's basically acknowledging that we don't have anything else we can do to stop the run. Never had to see it. Not one time did we even go to that, which shows the dominance of our base 3-4. That was very encouraging. We rotated a lot of linebackers through there. It's showing that guys like Bernie helped out a lot, right? Um, Brunson helped out a lot. These guys were getting meaningful minutes. They were helping. It also shows where Tennessee is as a program. But for us, the linebackers are learning how to play. But let's be clear here. Our game plan really was to was to hope and pray that Moon could do the job as our main edge linebacker. And boy, did he ever. And that's what allowed us to play so much 3-4. Because Moon's the only linebacker we have. I'm going to take Greenard out of it because we're pretty much just using him as a rush end all the time. That can truly do both things well. He can rush the passer, and he can even cover some. And I thought that opened up a world of possibilities for us. We thought Tennessee would attempt to create matchups versus Reese and our safeties. They really didn't. The biggest disappointment for me was was Jim Chaney as a game planner in this game. Tennessee was was all over the place. It's hard to find out what their discernible strategy was. It's like they were just running plays at times. They did get guys open. Certainly, most famously, the wide-open receiver that we bust our coverage on where Brunson should have got him doesn't get him. Just that that's a walk-in touchdown, and Garantano can't hit him. And then their best receiver, maybe besides Callaway, right? Jennings drops a wide-open touchdown pass. So outside of those two things, Alan, it's hard to find a lot of fault with what went down in this game. And again, I think our game plan was what we expected, and it was solid and good. And their game plan was just confusing. And that's why if you're a Tennessee fan, that's your, that's the problem I have with Tennessee right now. Is it's You need to make sense out of how you lost. They're just doing weird things. I don't know. But we handled our stuff, I thought, really well for us. It was a stepping stone, I think, for our defense. Interesting game from us. Moon is the guy who makes a lot of things click because I think they're even playing him at – it's hard to tell totally, but I think they're playing him at, at the star position sometimes, that nickel. And he's just good enough at coverage – that if in certain formations, they're not going to do it against like five wide. But in some of the situations, he's such a big guy and can move like he can move, unlocks a lot of things. Now, I think you can take advantage of him in certain ways, but also unlocks. Bernie being back there in passing situations was huge. Uh, you saw their tight ends and running backs basically get eaten up by Bernie when he's on the field. That's a lot of their offense. I think taking that away from them really disabled them. You're right, because it seems like they were just throwing against something against the wall, hoping that would stick, and nothing was sticking. Now, again, they would have had a few more plays had they just executed properly. But I loved what we did against them. Utilizing our kind of all, 
you know, utility players or all purpose kind of pieces in Bernie and Moon to really disrupt what they wanted to do. I thought it was an excellent job by the coaching staff, excellent execution that we weren't getting blown off the ball. We weren't dominant along the line of scrimmage, but we looked much better than we did against Kentucky. Yeah, much, much better. I thought it was a nice improvement from us. And again, Bernie makes a big difference. I think that's something we learned. When Zuniga comes back, he'll make a huge difference, right? So it was good to see this. Finally, though, we in order to run the 3-4, you got to be able to run the 3-4. We're built to run a 3-4. We're not there yet, but even our poor man's version worked, and that's very encouraging because that will help us immensely as we play some of the teams that are coming up in our schedule. All right, so we were successful largely with some opportunistic turnovers. We were fortunate to get a few of them, right? They kind of gifted us some... We were phenomenal against the run. Tennessee had proven to be a good running team. Granted, BYU's a little overmatched, but look, BYU's had a good season. They've been a good running team, and we were just absolutely fantastic against their running game. They really had no running game against us, which was a little bit of a surprise for me, right? I think we had the fear coming into the game. A lot of fans had the fear that we're never going to stop the run again. And we said on the podcast, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. I think there's reasons why we can, right? And we showed that. And obviously, Allen, our rotation of defensive line, which I like to watch, when we had our number ones in there at D-tackle, it's a huge difference with those guys being able to play. It's much, much different. They're not elite, but they can hold the line. Something we saw against Kentucky was not happening. And again, that's the difference between a really good offensive line against our defensive line versus Tennessee's, which is, you know, emerging, if you will. Yeah, they used a lot of guys effectively. You saw Chatfield out there. You saw um, a few more guys getting snaps. I'll say this. We got a ton of young guys snaps in key situations. This is something the coaching staff has been doing over and over again. But you see freshmen like Bogle, Diabate. These guys are not just in there in garbage time. They're in there for real snaps at high leverage situations. Not maybe the game on the line type of things. But in the first half, like regular kind of rotations, they're playing a ton of dudes, which I think helps, you know, at the end of the games, like you said. No, but they're taking these freshmen and already getting them ready. Now, this is our roster because we're these guys should be sophomores, essentially, that the new guys you're really getting reps. They're having to do it with freshmen, but they're getting them ready, and they look good out there. Um, I have to shout out Greenard really quick. The guy's been unreal. I can't imagine this season without him. I don't know what what our defense would look like. He is a terror out there against the run and the pass. He has such good instincts, you know, had a ball batted down. He's all over the place. I, I love him out there. And he's not, again, he's not his size, speed, strength. He's not going to, I don't think, project to be a traditional NFL defensive end. He would have to be a 3-4 outside linebacker like he is in our system. I don't know if he can do it at that high level, but for us, he's been phenomenal. Phenomenal. I, I think we would have so many breakdowns and deficiencies. He's covering up a lot for us. No, he, he's, to me... He's one of the MVPs of our team. You could argue something crazy here. The MVP of our team, if we're going to leave a quarterback out, because that's obviously too obvious, right? But this defense runs through him. I mean, the passes he knocked down in this game, those are game changers. Tennessee basically had no quick game because our D-line was knocking down passes. And I want to highlight that as our most improved area. In the Kentucky game and in previous games, we talked about this. We were just rushing past the spot. Greenard in one week like became an NFL defensive lineman, whereas previously was constantly rushing past the spot every time, right? Allowing a running gap or a throwing lane. He basically just read everything perfectly. He's like, oh, that's a quick game. Stop, bat it down. 
That is unbelievable improvement. I mean, crazy improvement from one week to the next for a college lineman. Like, that's nuts. And that was a game-changing situation. I mean, th- that, those are huge. When the quarterback feels like he can't execute a slant pattern because you're reading his soul and you know he wants to throw a slant, your day is very, very difficult. So I can't say enough about him. I'm with you there. He has just been phenomenal. We did struggle, I think, at one main area. Alan, we couldn't stop Jawan Jennings. No. How many years has he been there? 14 or 15? This is 15. Him and Callaway, like our whole lifetime. We couldn't stop him. There was one guy guarding him almost the whole game. If you've been listening for a while, you can probably guess who this is going to be. It's going to be Trey Dean. Trey Dean, on film, each and every week, Alan, continues to prove that he is just overmatched at nickel. He's a good corner. He is a good corner. So I'm not trying to body slam Trey Dean. Sometimes these position changes do not work. He is so uncomfortable out there. If you watch some of him, he's frequently backpedaling uneasily before the play even begins. He just does not have a feel for how to guard interior off the ball. He can't do it. He can't get his angles right. He's turning around all the time. Sometimes he's losing his he's losing his man. It's a it's a real problem for us right now. In Tennessee, that was their whole offense, was basically just attacking Trey Dean. So this is an interesting thought. And you know, we'll see how the Brad Stewart experiment goes as he gets himself back into shape. I wonder if Trey Dean's ultimate future is at safety. That you know, if he's not quite as good as the other corners on our team and he can't handle the particular nickel responsibility, especially in our system, it's complicated. You got to do a lot. You're, you're supporting the run. You're covering from a lot of different positions and angles. Then maybe safety is at his future. We could definitely use an infusion of talent there. So I, I don't know. He definitely needs, well, I'll say the coaching staff maybe needs to help him improve. Because it doesn't seem like he understands what he's doing. He's physically capable of doing it, obviously. He's not, it's not like we've got a guy out there who's going to get burnt every time. So, this is, you know, I don't think it's going to show up against Auburn necessarily because they don't, probably wouldn't be, their attack wouldn't be predicated on attacking that. But LSU will. The way they're throwing the ball around, that could be real bad for us. Um, This is such an interesting thing for our defense right now. They're solid guys at every spot. We've got returning guys, you know, Zuniga and Henderson, maybe our two best players. I liked what we saw out of this unit. It does lead me to believe Kentucky is even better at certain things than we're giving them credit credit for. But I thought it was a really game effort from them that they competed. And, you know, Mullen talked about kind of the strain. You know, he loves that word. You got a strain on every play, relentless effort. I don't – it's hard for me to grade relentless effort – but it did seem like they were coached well in the right spot and executing for the most part on what they were trying to do. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I think our tackling, although it was not great at times, is getting better. Some guys are really good. Bernie's a great tackler. Sean Davis continues to be a really solid tackler. Yeah, your boy Sean Davis, I, I mean, looked good again. Okay, actually, let me ask, let me talk about Marco Wilson. I was going to. That's great. You We've talked him. about him, and he had a pick in a situation that seemed to me very similar to the one we killed him for on the third and 21. I I was really pleased for him that he had a nice game. He had a nice game, and I think people are still kind of dogging him. On film, he's getting better each week. I think there's still a little philosophical uh, or psychological, rather, hindrance in his mind about his knee. I think his knee is fine, but anyone who's torn their ACL or had a serious injury, sometimes your mind is your enemy. He's not flipping his hips quite as quick. No one's getting past him, but he's a little slower to like play the ball on those vertical routes. But I'll tell you this. Um, 
I have no worries about Marco Wilson. He gets the pick by making a really nice read, right? And then the second pick, the one that I'm not sure who gets it, Sean Davis or someone else gets it flying across the field, Trey Dean, maybe. Bernie, maybe. Maybe Bernie, is all because of Marco Wilson. Marco Wilson reads the soul of uh, whether it was Garantano or it was the freshman. Mauer. It was Mauer, right? The Ocala kid. He comes off his man and just goes in there and breaks that play up. And the ball gets deflected because he goes in there. And it's fantastic on film. And it's perfect zone defense. So I think that's good. We talked about what was a way for us to improve last week. We needed Marco Wilson to improve his zone play. Much, much better this week. That's great. Very encouraging. Much better. Sure. And I think he's just getting more comfortable. This guy, in my opinion, was our best corner. I still, and I'm going to put it out there, I still think he's got a higher ceiling than CJ. He was as a freshman. They're the same size. You know, I, I just think he does. If he can get back to there, we're going to find out. But I'm not concerned with him. If you're concerned with Marco, I don't think you should be. The film would not tell you that. He seems to be getting better every single game. All right, ways to improve. I've got one I cannot wait to share. I'm so excited. Right, again, we're putting our coaching hat on. Okay. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I'm telling you I would do this if I was coaching the Gators. Watching on film, there's a guy I'm, I'm really starting to love, number 25, Chester Kimber. Chester. Chester is insanely quick. He had two plays in this game, Alan, where he jumped in front of routes and didn't get him. One he should have picked off for sure. Right. The other one wound up being that hero pass from their freshman quarterback. Right. Where Chester read the route, jumped in front of it, and he threw this perfect ball outside Just of his over hands. over Chester's hand, yeah. But Chester's a little undersized. But you know what that means Chester should do? Chester should play nickel. Chester is crazy quick. He stays on top of virtually every route I've seen him cover. His feet are fantastic. That's the kind of guy you want in the interior. He's also a really good tackler. Now, are they going to do this? Almost certainly not. In college football, you rarely ever put uh, a, a freshman closer to the middle of the field because the closer you get to the middle of the field, the harder it is to play the spot, right? It is. But I'm telling you, this guy's from New Orleans. Talk about LSU. Talk about Joe Burrow. This guy, if he's got a future on this team, Alan, I think it would be a nickel. Well, let's put it out there now. Let's uh, say it out there now. I say that. I'm just going to tell you. I would give the guy reps. It doesn't mean it works out. You look at him, you think, that guy's a nickel. Well, here's the interesting about the particularities of our defense as at least the coaches view it. Now, an NFL nickel is normally a, a smaller, undersized guy. I think Chris Harris on the Broncos. But what we like to ask our nickel to do is almost be a linebacker. Trey Dean, Chauncey Gardner, these guys are you know, on the larger end, but you know, could play safety more than they would play corner. And we're going to turn them in this like corner safety high linebacker hybrid, our star position. I wonder if Chester would be able to hold up physically at that spot. Now in coverage, maybe he's awesome at it. I, and he is a willing tackler. I wonder if he'd be able to fill the gaps on a consistent miss. So maybe you guess runner pass and you've got Chester versus trading out there or something like that i wouldn't hate it if trading can't get himself lined up and chester can i love i love just calling him chester i I love it i mean i think it's great i'm just telling you keep an eye on it i think i would try it though i think i've seen enough on film that trey concerns me some i'm not saying i'd abandon it this is where being at practice is really important right we can watch the film in the game but we have no clue what chester's thought process is like what other guy We, we just don't know that but i've seen enough on film to say that guy projects is that kind of guy that's the guy you put to chase everyone around. He's super full of energy. He's afraid of no one. And he undercuts every route. And he has which a cool is, hoodie on too. Yeah, which is literally what you dream of in your nickel. Undercut those routes. Because it's primarily what you're getting. Out routes, dig routes, post routes. Like Those are the guys that shine. I, I think he could do it in coverage. He's yeah. shown enough to me that I would say he can do it. But I think they have a lot invested at trading at this spot. 
they basically took him off of corner to put him there. And even with CJ going down, they haven't, maybe because they like Elam a lot. Elam, you know, kind of, we haven't talked about him. He played well. Um, so I, I think they'll be reluctant to make that change unless it just becomes so painful. Obviously, he's not going to be able to take the steps. I think our highest ceiling is if he gets it. Yeah, so maybe very, that's very reluctant, like we said. But the way to improve is we have to improve a nickel. That's the takeaway we're talking about. That's going to have to improve. And one of those ways is create some competition, try something else, get a little unconventional. Will we do it? I don't know. But there you go. You heard it here first. Well, let me ask podcast. you this. So you've been quite critical of any safety not named Sean Davis. They didn't get tested as much. What did you see from them? Anything encouraging or just nothing to see here? Not a lot to see because the things that Brad Stewart doesn't do well, he never had to do. Taylor, here, here's the deal. Name a safety that you recognize doing anything besides Sean Davis. And that's the problem we keep having. Is safeties in college football, you should know them very well because actually they get to be tremendous playmakers, especially on a good defense. You only notice Sean Davis, who's seemingly everywhere, which is what safeties do. Everyone else is like, who's that guy? All I know is Steiner is so far at the bottom of that list that I just don't want to ever see him play. He just doesn't do anything. Taylor's like a mixed bag. And then I think Brad Stewart has the higher ceiling, which is why I think he's the guy that deserves more reps. But Brad Stewart so far hasn't been able to cover anybody this season. So I don't know. I think the answer to your question is we don't know yet. It does look like rotationally they've settled on Sean playing 95% of the game. Amen. Thank you. Great job, Grantham. It seems like Stewart's the guy they're playing the large majority of the other time. Then it's Taylor. And then at the bottom is Steiner. So I think they've got the order correct right now. But man... Steiner and Taylor don't seem like SEC safeties. So no overt negatives, obviously, but Tennessee's not the type of team that would necessarily like burn you up. No, LSU is going to expose everything. If you're going to find out what who can play nickel and who can play safety, we're going to find out. Just wait a couple of weeks, and we're going to know. All those questions will be answered. All right. Lastly, ways to improve. Obvious as can be, we have to keep cleaning up the missed tackles. That's getting better each game. By the time we face Auburn, especially Auburn, right? Auburn is a trickeration little team. They're not great at passing yet. They can get it done, but that's not their strength. If you don't tackle them, that's what Gus thrives on. We have got to get that right. And I think I think that's the focus. I heard Grantham say it today on his SEC show. So there we are there. Special teams, I got nothing to add here, Alan. Another solid game. I mean, it's basically boring because they're so good. The boys are getting it done. They're getting it done. All right, coaching corner. Just a couple this couple this week. Got some fun ones for you. Fourth and three in the first quarter. First of all, do you like going for it? There? I do. I love it. Okay, second of all, did you like the play call? It was a Trask run play, yeah. if you don't recall. So here's Trask the, just takes a snap, runs forward. Yeah, so here's the problem when you don't have Felipe. This is the play you run for him, and we ran it with Trask. And I don't think Trask is so far behind Felipe as an athlete and a runner, but enough so with this offensive line that it's not going to work. Now, Felipe might have gotten stopped on this play too, but I didn't love – the play selection, but this is what Dan is comfortable with. You saw we're talking about what does he want to do? You it gets tight. This is what always happened. When it got tight, Tebow smash, right? That's his first move, and it wasn't the right one. It doesn't mean it can't work, but I don't know. We're we're in a little bit of a pickle here. There has to be some major adjustments from the coaching staff about what they're willing to put out there. Yes, correct. And okay, how about this? Do I mind that it's a run? Tell me more about the the front I'm facing. That's the first question you should ask yourself. It's not always run or always pass on fourth and three. It's tell me what defense I'm facing. What if I told you, like a 30 for 30 story, <laughs> what if I told you that they had nine guys in the box on yeah. fourth and three? Do you want to run it with Kyle Trask? No, I do not. 
Only Tim Tebow picks up fourth and three with 11 guys in the box. Or they had nine guys in the box. They knew what was coming. This was not a surprise to them. So in that case, I think that's when you go, great, you have nine guys in the box. I'll take my one-on-one with either Jefferson or Grimes all day, every day, and twice on Saturday till I'm blue in the face. It's probably a touchdown anyway. I want it. So I think in that case, I loved going for it. Really did not like the play. Trask gave a rather heroic effort to get there. He almost got there. He's a strong guy. But again, I think that's like what you said, and you hit the point. Watch that, because old habits die real hard. And I think Dan's going to have to challenge himself to grow some. I was really encouraged, by the way, Alan, to read in the offseason, that for the first time, Dan spent some time with Mike Leach. Whoa. That happened. He reached out. I think he's realizing that he's probably going to have to come off a little bit of this 1.0 version of his offense if he wants to win at an elite level. He hasn't quite spent all the time yet, but that was encouraging to me. That's the first step, I think, as a coach to really challenging what your blueprint is for success. All right, second one. Fourth and one on the goal line late in the second quarter. We're up seven to three. Do you want a field goal here or do you want a touchdown? I I want a touchdown. Ten to three. We're up ten to three. Yeah, so I am captain go for it on fourth down almost in every situation out. Except for end of half, end of game, you have to consider – because normally the expectation is that even if you don't score, at worst case they're gonna have a they're gonna have a very conservative effort. They'll probably punt it back to you. You can get back into field goal range almost always, but in the half obviously you can't. It's the last play. I still like going for it here. I think a touchdown there really puts the screws to them. I don't feel like a field goal missing it or not having it, or ma- it doesn't matter as much. A touchdown there really makes them. I think have to strain and adjust at halftime. I don't know. I liked it. We barely got it if we got it. That's tough. If you've got an offensive line and you've got a running back like P. Ryan or Pierce who has a little bit of a potential to be a hammer and you you barely pick it up. Yeah, we ran the same play twice in a row, by the way. First with Pierce, then with P. Ryan. I think Pierce was the better choice on the fourth down, but P. Ryan barely snuck in there. I loved it. Although you you highlighted the exact right circumstance, you lose the future value mathematically because if you don't get it, you don't get the ball back because it's halftime, which does greatly reduce the desirability of doing that. I think the way the game flow was, this is where you pay attention to the human behavior factor. A field goal doesn't change how Tennessee feels at all. A missed field, I mean, like a a missed touchdown there leaves Florida feeling like a little frustrated. I don't know that the bonus you get from being up 13 to three versus 10 to three is enough. The bonus you get from being up 17 to 3 is everything. It's it's a whole different game. And Dan said to the offensive line, hey, I'm going to put this on you. You've got to be able to get this. And so if you're thinking about it from a growth perspective, like a human development, it's probably good for them. Now, they've accomplished it, but only just barely. Yeah, but still, definitely, I'm all in. You're all in on that. That's the right call there. If he would have hit a field goal, I would have been disappointed. Let's Agreed. put it that way. Even if we gotten stopped, I would have said that's the right play. Okay, now we have a bonus coaching corner one from our from my buddy. Mr. Java Harry, uh, writing into us on Patreon and says, Hey, coaching corner on the Georgia game, please. So it's fourth and one. Georgia's winning 20 to 10. They're at Notre Dame's 26. Very, very interesting fourth quarter in this game, by the way. So, Alan, you're up 10. Seven minutes left in the fourth quarter. Fourth and one. Do you kick a 43-yard field goal or do you go for it? Heck no. I'm never kicking that field goal. Okay, if you want to find a chink in Kirby Smith's armor... It is late game tactics and decisions. Uh, obviously, the fake punt stands out. Um, 
I don't know if he clinches up or just doesn't have enough reps at it, but this was a very peculiar choice, and it almost bit them in the butt. Almost. Now, they pulled the game out and you know did what they had to do, but I, I, if I were a Georgia fan, I would not be confident that Kirby would make the right tactical decision in the game at this point. Yeah, did it almost bite them, or do you think Kirby looks at it and says, because they kicked a field goal, Notre Dame couldn't kick a field goal to tie? Do you think it reinforces his position? And possibly. I, and if he's thinking that way, I hope he continues to think that way so that we play and we can take advantage of it. I do too. I think this comes into what we call, I guess we're going to call it like the, the lull of paying attention to how many scores you're up by. Uh-huh. And that's what that's what I would do as a coach always. So if I'm up 20 to 10, I'm up two scores. If I kick a field goal, I'm up two scores. If I have a chance to go up three scores, that effectively ends the game. So rather than look at the super conservative model of, oh, wait a minute now, if they score and get a field goal, this happens. Forget that. I have control. I want to exploit my advantage of having the ball. Having the ball in football is having control. You dictate what happens Especially in the game. Especially at fourth and one. You're also Georgia. You pride yourself on running the ball. You're playing the tiny little kids from Notre Dame that aren't athletic enough to hang with the big boys, right? You're at home. You go pick up that first down. You score a touchdown. You win the game. He didn't do it. Very questionable. Very conservative. I don't like it. I don't care how good their kicker is, and he's very good. I don't like it. And I think, like you said, they were real close to giving a touchdown in that game to lose where that would have felt very bad. I think people would have been questioning that decision. Well, I don't like the decision in a vacuum, but I really like it as a Gator fan. I do indeed. So that's our bonus coaching corner. In the future, if you have bonus coaching corner segments from other games around the country, send them to us, and we will feature them uh, because they're fun. Okay, a couple bright spots and then some final thoughts. I'm going to list these. Alan, I want you to talk about them. we got Trask. I talked a lot about him. Yes, he's amazing. Greenard, right? Moon, who was great. Elam, we should talk sometime about. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put your boy, LeCedric Brunson, on here. He played a lot of snaps. He did. All throughout the game. And minus a, a, a blown coverage, which he blew on the one that they dropped. He played a really nice game out there. Well, he had to. Uh, Miller, you know, if you're live, I don't know if they showed this on TV, you know, went into the locker room in the first half and came back out limping. So we'll see about his health. Um, but he played a ton of snaps. And did a really nice job. It's great that we have another linebacker who we can put out there and feel confident about. Yeah, he's a two-star guy, but he's got a good frame. He's got good size. He does not look like some random guy out there. And he moves really well. I actually think he covers very well, too. So keep an eye on him, number 34. And then Bernie, number Bernie. 30. This is a game-changer for us. When you watch him out on the field, he eliminates. And we saw this in the last year against FSU and some of our other late-season opponents. He is so good at covering especially a tight end, a running back, that it's almost unfair. He just takes them out. So watch him in coverage. Now, again, we he's not quite the same kind of guy. He's not going to be Ventral Miller and come in and just obliterate you on a rundown, although he is a, a good tackler in space. Um, but he is really key for us, and we haven't really had him yet. So that is another big win health-wise for this team. Hopefully he can continue to stay healthy. All right, final thoughts, a couple of big questions yeah, here for here the we go. Tennessee game moving forward before we talk about Towson. Should Mullen have been playing Trask all along? Yeah, this is fascinating. We asked this last week, or, or answered this and asked this, I guess, of ourselves last week. I would continue to stick with my answer that Trask wasn't playing because he hasn't played. And I think for Dan Mullen, that was a huge thing. He had a lot invest, invested in Felipe. He saw... I think what Felipe could become and continued to ignore a little bit what Felipe currently was. And you just didn't know what Trask was going to do when you put him out there. 
so again, that's a little explanation. Yes and no. Had you moved towards Trask two years ago, maybe he's a Heisman candidate now. Who knows? I mean, he he looks so excellent on Saturday. Maybe he turns into a pumpkin, you know, against LSU or Auburn. But I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to kill Dan for this, so I'm going to say not necessarily. But I have a feeling you're going to go the other way. I am. Coaches aren't supposed to be perfect, by the way. I think if I was coaching and I was doing a podcast on myself, I would I would hope I would find reasons to say this was a bad decision because you're a human. You don't have all the information. That's, that's part of making decisions is sometimes you make the wrong one. We all do. That's okay. Then you just try to make the right one next time. I think it's clear now that we've made the wrong decision with Franks. It's possible. This will really go to Dan's betterment in the future. It's possible. He was married to Franks because Franks would have been the first failure and Franks was never going to be a failure. What Dan got out of Franks was, was fantastic. He's winning football games, right? But certainly not benching him would have been seen as a failure. Yes, and so he's not going to come off of him, right? I want to say this because I'll say this. I was at practice, not this season, but the season before, and I said on this podcast, "Hey, I was only at one practice. You never want to base anything on one practice." But it was real clear who the best passing quarterback was, and it was Trask. Well, of course, we have that on on record here. Was blatantly obvious. He was light years better than anyone else. So I have a hard time believing that hasn't been the case for a long time. But again. We've talked about it a lot, so I won't cover it now. Dan Mullen is not that kind of coach. He has what he wants. He doesn't fit. Trask is like an alien from a different planet in this system. I think this is going to be fun to watch maybe both of them work with each other. Trask seems like an incredible teammate. He's next to Dan the entire time. He's the first to high-five everyone. I'm rooting for the guy. I think he's doing everything right right now. I'm excited to see how it works, but I think it's hard for me intellectually to say, judging by what we just saw, that Trash should not have been playing all along, especially since at a practice, he was definitely a better passer. I think he's always been the better passer. I don't think you just come off the bench like this and are so good and not having had some skills. Sure. But look, this happens. Gardner Minshew, lighting the world on fire. How many years did he play at Washington State? Just one. He played one, his final year. And now he's in Jacksonville as a starter in the NFL, and he's set the all-time record for his first three games for completion percentage in the NFL. That's crazy, right? So sometimes it's just the right time. So you're not going to kill a guy for this. Certainly the data would suggest, yes, Trask would have had a higher ceiling for us. I want to close this subject with this. There's a lot of people out there that still feel like, well, Franks can do this, or we could win more games to Franks, or Franks is the better option because of the offensive line. I refuse to buy into that for quarterbacking. I didn't buy into it. Jeff Driscoll versus Jacoby Brissett. I will never buy into that. If you're choosing a guy because you think he's slightly more mobile than someone else, you're always making the wrong decision. Choose the best decision-making quarterback with the most accurate arm. That's the guy that should play quarterback, period, unless you're running the veer or something else. If you're going to throw the ball 15, 20 times a game, pick a quarterback. That's right. my philosophy. Coaches are coaches always, are different than that, though. Yeah, coaches are always risk-averse as well, traditionally, unless you got a, a total outlier like a Mike Leach. And, you know, if Trask is a gunslinger, he would have been throwing more picks in practice. And maybe Dan's like, I can't tolerate that level of risk in the game. Who knows? Maybe he's like, wow, this is the best case version of this so far. Let's cross our fingers and hope we don't get a few more bad trash decisions. And we haven't really talked about this, but I got to say the human side of this is amazing to me. I am so pulling for Kyle Trask. I've never met the guy. Don't know what he's like really personally. He could be horrible. But from every article I've read, every testimonial about him seems like a really solid guy 
who's committed and loyal. And those things are, I think, underrated in our current culture. I'm so excited that he's getting this chance and excelling. This is such a fantastic story. I am too, and I know for sure, for those of you that will say I'm biased towards Trask, if I am biased towards him, it's because of that, actually. I love that you know character. I think the way he handles himself is really exemplary. Just as a note here as a final thought, Dan said in the presser today, Alan, that he thought the, improve all, the team improved all around the most this week against Tennessee. That's a very obvious statement. It's definitely true. I think we saw that on film. There were large strides. How much of that goes to Trask and others, I don't know. But I'm going to tell you something. You go how your leader goes. And there were a lot of articles that talked about his influence at practice, the way he handled his reps, the way he expected other guys to handle their reps, the way he stayed engaged the entire time. You never once saw Trask talking to the fans, standing up on the bleachers. He was constantly paying attention to everything that happened on offense the entire game. He's a good leader right now. We'll see what happens in the future. Okay, a couple of spots from you I know here. Okay, this is maybe my favorite question of the whole podcast. I'm excited to ask you about it. So Jeremy Pruitt and Dan Mullen are both second-year coaches. Dan Mullen famously almost went to Tennessee. I think if we hadn't offered him the job, he would have been there. Let's like do the sliding doors kind of universe. If Tennessee hires Dan Mullen, let's say we have a weird choice and hire Jeremy Pruitt. Are the because the talent composite of his teams is right next to one another. Are we basically inverted? Is Tennessee where we're at and are we where Tennessee is at? Life is about people. It's important not to forget that. Their ideas, their execution, their thoughts. And because of that, the answer is is yes. We would be more or less inverted. Be very, very similar. It's easier to win at Florida than Tennessee. We had a slightly better situation. But for all practical purposes, Dan Mullen would be beating us at Tennessee and we would be losing to him here at Florida with Pruitt. I, I believe that to be true. So does that mean that Dan Mullen is undervalued as a head coach? If he's worth that much, you t- put him and it, look at where Tennessee is and where we are relatively. Does that raise your level of appreciation for Dan Mullen? Yeah, well, I think we've been saying that all along. I think we always, and to be fair, to it's even my own, my own critical comments against Dan, which still remain, right? My main critical comment on Dan is recruiting, which has not turned to sunshiny rose forward yet. And then winning something. That It wasn't that the guy wasn't going to win against Tennessee, Kentucky, and those guys. That was a given. We said so on the pod. This guy's almost always going to win you nine games. We said that. For Tennessee, that'd be heroic. For Florida, that's not good enough. But Tennessee so, doesn't want... That shouldn't be heroic for Tennessee, I don't no, think. No, it shouldn't be. But right now, it would be. They're at a different stage mindset-wise than we are, right? The last time they won a title was the late 90s. We won one in the mid-2000s. So it's it, we would get there eventually, too, right? But your your question remains true. Dan is definitely undervalued. Yes, he is, because we live in a culture that is obsessed with winning titles and championships. That's the name of the game. It's about winners, not people that finish in second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth. There's good and bad with that. I think that does become true. That's the story of Mark Richt. You can do really, really well for a long time, but at some point in time, you're trying to win. You're Georgia, right? We don't know where Dan is going to wind up yet. But your comment is still true. In fact, so true that I saw a lot of Tennessee message board comments comment on the precise thing you just said is man we should have hired Dan Mullen wouldn't have been great if we hired Dan Mullen there's a prominent Tennessee booster who was dead set against hiring Dan Mullen because of what you just said he felt like Dan Mullen was never going to be the guy that could win everything so then they hire Pruitt that makes you question what's going on they don't hire Leach because Leach can't win everything well certainly Dan Mullen's a more successful version of those two guys right I think Leach is super fun I love the guy he's been very successful he has a ranked team everywhere he goes but 
I don't think you can argue that Leach is going to win a title. That would be a crazy argument. At any rate, yes, very undervalued. I think he's proving, like we said, something I didn't know, which is that he's definitely, I think, one of the best overall team developers in the game. But right now he's working with inferior talent, and so far he hasn't crossed the bridge yet. Pruitt seems lost, for lack right. of a better term. He Call seems it. lost. So those two guys are in different hemispheres. Well, coaches. it's crazy that we were basically at the same point now. We had had more recent success, like you said, but we had had, I mean, Butch Jones had a decent year and then bottomed out. McIlwain, decent years, bottomed out. The programs were almost on the exact same footing. They have better facilities. They have some advantages. You know, Florida is a t- more talent-rich state, but Tennessee has all, can always attract talent. So if you're Tennessee and you look at this and you go, should we keep Pruitt? And Andy Staples, the national writer, uh, formerly Sports Illustrated, now with athletics, says, no, you have to stay the course. It's the only way out of this, another coaching change. I disagree vehemently. You just look at this and go, we're two years in. Look at where Florida is. Look at where we are. We're not even close. It doesn't matter like who won the game necessarily. That's not what I would put it on. But you can just see it the programs. You have to go, he cannot do it right now. You have to fire him immediately. And that's, and, that's, and that's it. And that's the stance I love we take on this podcast is you give people time when the data suggests that you should. The data does not suggest that. He is without excuse. Again, are you expecting Tennessee to win a national title? No. But you cannot be so woefully behind. You can't be barely winning a single SEC game with the same talent Florida has. You can't do it. Look, we've got all kinds of depth problems too. So I'm with you all the way there. The writing's in the wall for Pruitt. And, and according to our three-year test, it's very clear that he ain't going to make it. And so if you're Tennessee and you want to win, stop giving these guys huge buyouts. And they got a problem there with this yeah. buyout. This buyout's pretty big. They're kind of stuck. I like that question. All right, you got one more coming. Yes, I like this too. You said something I found interesting. And interesting is the word in this quote. So if Trask can play a whole game, making reads, and throws for a real 300 yards, and what you meant by that was not a lot of east-west, you know, throw a screen to Tony and he breaks a bunch of tackles, which Trask very almost did, 293, which is, you know, if you're wondering, that's more than Felipe has ever thrown for in a game in his first start. If he throws for a real 300 yards, and let's just say he did, essentially, we could be in for a very interesting rest of the season. Do you still feel the same way after that quote? Oh, and even more so. I came into the game wondering what he would do against a confusing defense. Look, the narrative was he's going to throw the ball right to somebody, you know, and then you find out in high school, the guy actually never threw picks ever. Like maybe the gunslinger mentality is something we've given to him because in spring games, he's trying to make a name for himself, right? So maybe we don't really know what Trask is about. That's true. So he comes out and throws for 200 plus yards in one half of football, which again, at Florida is like, like an anomaly, which is sad because we're Florida, but it's an anomaly. But he looks great doing it. I mean, our guys are wide open. It's like, that's, that's, we're slicing them up. So to me, we are in for a very interesting rest of the season. I am so excited to watch this gauntlet of games upcoming. Don't mistake me. When we said, Alan, you and I both agreed our ceiling is higher and our floor is lower, we very really understand that Trask, as an inexperienced guy, could lose confidence. Things could go off the rails. A team could find a defense that really works against him. There's things that can happen, right? But that's why it's interesting. I do think for sure that our ceiling is higher than it would have been with Franks. I am confident of that. I would be happy to debate that with anybody that wants to come on the show and debate me for that. Our, our, I think our floor is lower too because it's more of an unknown. We knew exactly what we got with Franks. But what Trask proved in these five quarters of football is not only 
could this guy be really good? He very well might be one of the top five best readers in the game, right? Tua, I think, is probably the best reader of the game right now. He's super, super good at reading defenses. That's why he excels. I think Trask is right there. Wow. I think he's I think he's probably, from what we've seen, Alan, one of the top quarterbacks in the SEC, which is not saying a lot. There's not a lot of great quarterbacks in the SEC. But we went from a mediocre guy who could do some limited things to a guy who I think is a plus guy. Right. And he's changed how teams have to defend us. And that in and of itself is not only interesting, but I think encouraging. Right. And so, again, we're working – you said it's five quarters – which is enough to like say some things about now it's not a lot. Right. So we're making a projection here, but interesting is the key word here. I'm so excited about this October slate of games, Auburn, LSU, Georgia. That is freaking phenomenal. I love that Auburn won. You know, hopefully they beat Mississippi state this week that we're going to have two top 10 teams in the swamp and win or lose that game. And that's what Auburn is predicting. Auburn is impossible. Like we said, but already that LSU game is going to be so interesting. Assuming, you know, things don't dramatically derail or some cat- catastrophes happen. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I think most people are like us, Alan. They're so excited about Florida football right now. They're really excited about watching the next games. And I realize there are some people that are still like, ah, it's more the same. We can't run the ball. We're struggling. I get that. I'm certainly not trying to convince anyone to come to my opinion. But I think I'm going to, like we said, put the data out there to say this is what the projection would suggest. Now we will let the chips fall where they may. All right, something very cool has been happening here on the podcast. Uh, One, we keep growing, which is awesome. Thank you so much for those of you that share us with your friends and do all the wonderful things you do. It's all word of mouth. We do zero advertising, obviously, in this podcast. So this podcast is the biggest skater football podcast because of you, which is awesome. And so because of that, we've got these cool opportunities one is the programmatic ads, as they call them, that play at random times in between Alan and I's voices are gone, never to come back. Woohoo, that's amazing, right? Uh, but what's in is some sponsors. And so basically this week we've got MyBookie, MyBookie.ag, that wants to sponsor a segment. And what segment are they sponsoring? The one you expect, the one where we cover the national games and the point spreads, where Alan and I kind of give you, here's the spreads, here's the points, here's what happened. Uh, we're not going to endorse or not endorse gambling. They're a sponsor. They're sponsoring our segment. We talk about it anyway. Uh, but what's important to, now, to know now is if you join MyBookie, MyBookie.ag, there on your mobile phones if you're listening, they'll double your first deposit. You can use the promo code GatorNation to activate the offer. Uh, that promo code is GatorNation. So visit MyBookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid, and they have better lines than any other sport book. And if you like to play, that's a really important thing. So on to the games from this past weekend, Alan. There were some notable results. Yeah. Why don't you walk us through? We already talked about this game a little bit. Notre Dame, 17, at UGA, 23. Notre Dame was a pretty big underdog in this game. And, you know, I was actually pretty impressed by them. They made it a real game all the way to the end. Georgia pulls it out. Yeah, Georgia pulls it out. They do not They do not cover, right? So Vegas was, was wrong about that. I think that, you know, more or less disappointing. I think if you're a Notre Dame fan, you're happy. Mm-hmm. You feel like you competed with the big boys finally. On the road at if you're, Georgia. If you're a Georgia fan, you're worried. I watched that game. Georgia's weird. You can't... These old school power teams, it's like what people used to do with Bama. You can't look at these one game results and think, wow, they're soft and weak and terrible. It's just how they play. It's a hard style to beat. It's a hard style to beat. It's not going to look amazing at times, but it is a hard style to beat. So I would caution Gator fans who watch that and say, 
Oh, they're vulnerable. That's how Georgia looks. It's still a hard style to beat. Just don't sleep on that fact. But Notre Dame, maybe this will be a better season for them. Either way, good game. Not really exciting until the end of the game, but a great finish. Auburn, 28, A&M, 20. Auburn was owning this for a while, and they let A&M back into it, but big win for Auburn. If we were doing a podcast on A&M, I would ask serious questions about why Jimbo Fisher is not playing anyone not named Kellen Mond, a quarterback. I mean, he is killing them. He's I honestly think them. that A&M could be undefeated right now if they had just an average quarterback. He is atrocious, and Jimbo Fisher will not play anyone else. Now, look, I don't know anything about the backups at A&M. I have no idea what's going on. I totally trust in Jimbo Fisher. I think he's a great coach. This team is well-prepared, except that they have a super huge quarterback problem, and it's literally ruining any chance to have a good season. Auburn, on the other hand, Alan, I'll give credit where credit is due. You called it. I said this was the year Malzahn's riding out of here. I knew it was technically supposed to be the year where he comes back and does well right every other year, and he's doing it again. He's doing it again. I mean, those are – I don't know how good Auburn actually is, but they have the best pair of wins in the country, Oregon, neutral site, and at A&M. Oh, fantastic. I mean, they're, they're, they're riding sky high, and they've got another interesting game this weekend. Okay, this one, one of my favorites. UCF 34, Pitt 35. This was a wild game. Look like Pitt had it. UCF comes all the way back, and then Pitt steals it at the end. Love. Just <laughs> happiness and joy. We watched at the house. There was a lot of celebration. Probably too much for probably. UCF going down. But, you know, when you live in Gainesville, you deal with the Orlando people all the time, and I don't know what it's like around the UCF football team this week, but it's got to be like a funeral. Because when you put yourself out there for so long, and when you beat a Stanford team who's obviously fraudulent and think that you've arrived only to lose to Pitt, and what was a wildly exciting and fun game, by the way. I mean, that's it. That's I love it, it for them. So just an announcement here. We have some friends, some of the supporters of the podcast, one, Dimitri Stamos, and a few others who are legitimately attempt this is not a joke they're legitimately attempting to put up a billboard congratulating the Pitt Panthers 2019 NCAA champions uh they're gonna have a GoFundMe to do this they're trying to get it done this week we'll we'll link it on our social media so if you are like me and think that's a hilarious idea you could uh, support them in their process. I think they're going to get it done anyway, but it's going to be great. Yeah, it'll be a month on I-4, like right close to the campus. So every day you'll drive by and, and see this. So hopefully yeah. that happens. You know what? End the, of your reign. It might not happen. They're trying to turn this around overnight. But uh, if it does, uh, hopefully we'll see it picked up all over the country. It'll be hilarious. Okay. Wow. This one, I, as this was unfolding in the stadium, you know, you, you're just watching the scores come up. Michigan 14, Wisconsin 35. It wasn't. Nearly this close, even. Dominant, dominant performance by Wisconsin. Yeah, all I have to say here is it's over, Michigan. It's over. You must fire Highball. Highball, he's been year five for him, right? This was the year. He failed the three-year test, which we famously talked about on the show. He failed it. We said, well, it's interesting. He did not pass the three-year test for an elite coach. He's down here, but he's got a weird resume. Maybe you give him another two years, which we said, if I'm the AD at Michigan, he's done. And I know to a lot of people that seems crazy, but if you're Michigan, you're also trying to compete for national titles. He's not getting it done. And this this doesn't make any sense, Alan. You you just, what is going on? It feels like they hit this peak. I mean, Harbaugh was out there doing all the camps, having these crazy press conferences and pe- pep rallies. And he seemed like he's just lost his enthusiasm. He does. He was geared up, and now it feels like he just feels defeated. 
the problem with Michigan is like, who are you hiring to replace him that is going to win at a higher rate? It feels like your best best chance for it is that he gets invigorated and figures it out. Well, maybe, or you go with what we talked about when we did our our keep fire or, or you know extend. You have your eye out for the next guy you think is worth taking the risk on, and when a guy comes out that you say that guy's worth taking the risk on, you know Brett Venables, maybe one of those guys from Clemson. Maybe you start the backdoor conversations. You go for it. All right, this gosh, this is end up being a wild weekend of football. Number ten Utah falls to. Jekyll and Hyde USC 23 to 30. I think if you're a USC fan, you're frustrated. Almost everybody wants Clay gone, but these results keep happening. And Utah, who was, we thought, yeah, this is great. We sat on the pod, their driver's seat now, wide open road. Now their road to win the Pac 12 is like almost impossible. They go being from ranked 10th, now they only have one loss to where like the way the crazy Pac 12 is, they're kind of out of it. So a great win for USC, but I don't know if they're out of it. There's too much chaos left to come. But yeah, their road becomes a lot more difficult. So USC, they lose their star quarterback, have this guy Keaton Slovis come in, light it up. He gets hurt. The next guy comes in and lights it up too. So maybe what this means is that Graham Harrell should get a head coaching job there, OC. Because the way he's prepped these guys and the way they're throwing the ball around has been very impressive. Oh, it's incredible. Their passing game takes no deviation, and they're just throwing in freshman after freshman. And they have a lot of talented guys on that roster, but man, you're right. Good point about that. Louisville 24, FSU 35. Very disappointing. Louisville was out of it. FSU gave up another second-half lead and then held on at the end. The third time this season they've blown a 21-point lead. That's a true story. They need to third they look at time Savage. a twenty-one point lead. That's hard to even understand. They hung on, which was unfortunate. But either way, they covered the spread too, an FSU cover. So look out for that. Weird and wild. LSU sixty-six, Vandy thirty-eight. A lot of points from Vandy, but this game wasn't ever really in doubt. Wow, LSU is the number though. one offense in college football. If you've been a college football fan for a long time, let that settle in. LSU is the number one offense in college football. That experiment is working beyond their wildest dreams. Vandy scored most of its points on LSU's backups. There is still some question about LSU's defense, which is supposed to be exemplary, but that offense right now with Joe Burrow is just clicking. Okay, Cal 28, Ole Miss 20. Cal, I don't know what this says about Cal, but that's not an easy thing to go into SEC on the road and win. No, and this game was insane. I don't know if you saw the end Nothing of, it. of it. Oh, you don't even know. You don't even know. So the AD after the game immediately does something ADs never oh, do. Oh, wait, I do know and this. And publicly admonishes the officials and their job and expects yes. an apology because they totally screwed up. I'm sorry, up. yes. Ole Miss basically scores. Ole Miss is on the one-yard line, third and goal with 10 seconds left and no timeouts. And they throw a pass. Macaroth throws a pass, to which looks to be almost a certain touchdown to me in live time. They don't call it a touchdown. The Ole Miss players are confused for at least several seconds. Like That's clearly a touchdown. And they're also thinking a review has got to happen. There's under two minutes left here. They actually get themselves lined up in time, which is kind of heroic given the situation. Run another play, which is close. Game over. Don't get in. Yeah, the Cal fact wins. that they, they didn't review, I don't even understand. Those guys should be fine slash fired. For you have to at least review that. It And looking back at replay, he... Seemed like he got in. He seemed like it's in. No review on third down. You, I mean, I don't even know. It's crazy when you think of how much goes into one of these games for coaches, histories, futures, rankings, everything. That was a Pac-12 crew officiating at an SEC stadium. We know what that's like as Gator fans. It's the reason why an ACC crew will never officiate a Florida-Florida State game at Florida ever again. 
That was insane to me, though. In, in, in the era of replay and everything else we have, that was an unbelievable failure to unbelievable. not stop that game and review it. Yes, you're right. And Pac-12 officials are notoriously terrible. This was an extra terrible effort by them. Washington, 45, BYU, 19. Washington handles them. You just got to think that BYU ran out of gas here. We kind of asked that question. Do they have anything left? Of course, I, I picked them because it was fun to keep them going. But I think you can't, that kind of roster, you can't continue to play at that level that long. And that's what we always argue about with UCF. Look, UCF, you're cute and all. You crank Stanford, spent all your energy, lost to a very average pit team. Imagine doing that almost every single week. You can't. That's the difference between the big boys and the smaller boys. All right. What ended up being a great game, Oklahoma State 30, Texas 36. Texas covers. We talked about them. It seems like they should cover. They only barely did. And Vegas, they're geniuses. Minus five and a half. They cover by half a point. But I love Mike. I mean, I love just Mike Gundy so much. Like The mullet. His mullet right now is so out of control. If you haven't seen it, it started years ago with a bet with his son about how to grow a proper mullet because his son couldn't identify one, he thought. His, that thing is unreal. I mean, it's unreal. There's something, either he's crazy or whatever. I love it. But Oklahoma State's always cagey. And there's a guy, Allen, that surprisingly has not level jumped. I think his success there would indicate a better job. You're kind of capped at Oklahoma State. He's happy there, obviously. But, man, they gave Texas all they could handle in that game. Love it. I mean, Big 12 games, always kind of crazy. Colorado State 34, Arizona State 31. Arizona State finally loses yeah her Edwards goes down Colorado quietly putting together yeah. a nice little season knock yeah. off Scott Frost knock off Herm Edwards they're moving along here all right I've said this already like oh wild game oh wild game I guess this has to be the wildest game <laughs> I can't even really believe I'm reading the score UCLA 67 at Washington State 63 UCLA who has struggled to score a touchdown in some games was down 49 to 17 with six minutes left to play that can't be right in the third in the third quarter six minutes left to play in the third quarter 49 17 yes i was gonna say that at this point in time i go to bed it's like one yeah 15 in the morning and i love the pac-12 after dark because you've heard me talk about the podcast before something tends to go crazy in the pac-12 after dark games and so i go to bed i wake up like an hour later for some reason and i check my phone because i'm curious and the game's not over. So I get to tune in and I see the last drive. I'm laying in bed. I stream it on my phone. And the announcer says, this is, you know, there's a minute and 10 seconds left. Washington State has the ball. I'm like, oh, they're probably going to score and win. And, and they literally say, yeah, it's crazy. You know, this quarterback's got nine touchdowns. You've got Gordon Minshew in the stadium as this guy's breaking his records. 500 and some odd yards, nine touchdowns. Usually can't stop anybody. They haven't sacked him all day. Very first play. Guy beats his man, strip sack, falls on the ball, game over. It was one of the most stunning endings. The crowd was in complete stunned silence. 49 to 17, Allen, on the road with six minutes left in right. the third quarter. And the, the sad thing is because the Pac 12 plays so freaking late, hardly anyone even knows what, this happened. What the heck happened? How did UCLA suddenly start scoring a billion points? Turnovers. So Washington State turned it over six times, okay. but they scored like four touchdowns in a row, and two of them were on, were in like ten seconds. It was like an unbelievable barrage of points. Honestly, it was. It's probably one of the craziest games ever played. But again, you may not even know this happened. This could be the first time you're hearing this on the podcast. I implore you to watch the two minute highlight on YouTube. It is beyond comprehension. Insane. All right, week four SEC roundup. There were just a couple of games here to note. Some interesting ones, though. The SEC East took their show on the road. Kentucky traveled to Mississippi State. 
Mississippi State took care of business, covered the spread. They won 28-13. They looked much better in this game. Kentucky looked woeful on offense. That's what happens when you get a week of tape on a new quarterback, by the way. Uh, I think that really that affected Sawyer Smith in that game. Good win for Mississippi State. Yeah, good win for them. I, you know, sets up a really nice game with Auburn next week. Um, you know, I set up a point for Auburn because I just like to raise the stakes for us. But um, that's not a gimme by any means. No, much better situation we're in for sure. South Carolina, just confusing South Carolina. 14, Missouri 34. Missouri was favored by basically 10, but they just trounced South Carolina. I mean, late pick six when maybe South Carolina was threatening to get back in it. Uh, Missouri, they're very intriguing. Um, already have inked in a loss to them. Yeah, and if we're looking at our future schedule, which we're going to next week, we'll play the schedule game again with really the meat of our schedule available. Things are going to get very interesting for this Florida team. San Jose State 31. San Jose State is not good. They've been good before. They're not good this year. They're very, very bad. On the road against Arkansas, they win 31-24. This is inexplicable. I mean, just when you think Arkansas may be turning a slight corner to not respectability, but at least not awfulness and... E. read an article by an Arkansas guy who was a longtime blog writer and said this is the lowest low that he's ever had. It's so low that, that some people are like hire, rehire Bobby Petrino, who represents one of the pinnacles of their program. But could you really ever do that after what just transpired at Louisville? I mean, they're desperate there. It's bad. Southern Miss 7, Alabama 49. Tua just goes absolutely crazy again with like five touchdown passes and a bunch of slant routes that go for scores. Yeah, nothing to see here. They're going to dominate this game. I mean, the meat of their schedule is coming up very soon as well. I did get to watch a lot of uh, the new Aflac Nick Saban commercials this weekend. However. Yes, they so were out with his rings. His baby blue uh, shirt. All right, so here we are, fans, podcast fans, two hours and 24 minutes into this podcast, and we still have not talked about Towson. I did not think, Alan, we were going to get a Megasode today. I actually thought in my head, hey, the fans who wanted a Megasode, they're going to get like an hour. Yeah, James, you but continually underestimate us. Somehow you keep imploring us. All right, this will be a rapid finish because we are playing an FCS team. Alan, walk us through what Towson's about. Yes, let's talk about Towson. Actually a credible FCS program. They lost last week in overtime to number 18 Villanova. They're essentially a top 10 FCS team. They're 3-1, and one, but we are favored by 33. Last couple years against FBS in 2018, lost to Wake Forest 51-20. In 2017, lost to Maryland 63-17. Those are not, obviously, stalwart FBS teams. So when they move up in competition, they have not done well. But they are an established FCS program. Um, Their coach, Rob Ambrose, has been there forever. It's his 11th season. He played there as well. I guess he's essentially a lifer there. Uh, Their OC, Scott Van Zyl, his third season. He also played at Towson. Their DC is Eric Daniels, his first. Um, Their strengths... Offense, they're scoring a decent amount per game. And notably, I'm sure you'll hear this a lot, their QB is Tom Flacco. Yes, Joe's younger brother, Tom. Um, And a little bit of a dual-threat guy, which is kind of surprising considering Joe Flacco's dimensions. Their defense has been generating some turnovers, but this is a team that is very, you know, kind of maybe a traditional FCS team in that their talent and size is not up there. There's some FCS teams who maybe would be a little more talented, a little bit bigger, but stereotypically is the right word I was looking for. Stereotypically smaller. So I don't think that they're going to give us too many problems matchup wise, physicality wise, 
We're not going to really talk to you about their offense or defense. Turnover margin. This is an FCS team. We should obliterate them. Uh, injuries. CJ Henderson, who knows? Probable. Zuniga, probable. I don't know if we're actually going to see these guys in this game. If it were Auburn, we might see them. But against Towson, I doubt they play. Anybody who's dinged up at all probably won't play. James, the score here in a minute, but what do you want to see in this game? Yeah, I think that's the question to ask yourself, of course, right? We just blitz right through what Towson is. Um, that's no disrespect to them. It's just that, like Alan said, you know, talent size-wise, they're not there. Keep in mind, of course, this has happened before, right? Schools out of their conference. They play in the best FCS conference. Schools have gone out of there and beaten teams. And if you go look at them, you can see history of that. I don't think that's going to be the case this time. So what do we want to see? One, I think 33 points is kind of low. I think if Trask is playing a significant amount with a passing game, that's where you can really put the screws to these lesser teams. If you think of what Spurrier did back in the day when you play overmatched opponents, when you can pass on teams like these, you score fast, very fast. So I think it's possible we outscore that for a change as opposed to kind of like limping along for a while. That'd be fun. But what I want to see is more development from Trask. I think it'll be fun to watch a team like Towson who's been together for a long time as a staff, very cohesive unit. They're a smart team, not not as athletic, but smart. What they try to do, it's always fun, right? UT Martin had a phenomenally creative game plan against us running that 3-3-5 defense. I look forward to seeing that, always enjoyable. Um, and then I think you want to see... I mean, ideally here, Alan, you'd like to see a running game yes. of any kind. And I think, sadly for us fans, Dan's probably going to force this issue. Um, we know Trask can pass. I'd like to see us just light him up. I think there's going to be more running than I want in this game because that's definitely our weakness, and you want these O-linemen to keep cleaning stuff up. I agree with that as a, as a coaching mindset. You need to work on it. These are what these games are for. As a fan, maybe there'll be more of that than I want. Right. We shall see. I agree. I would like to see us open up some holes. So we talked about the deficiencies of the O-line. Some of that is just their, you said their footwork and power. Like, can they translate from technique into physicality? And they haven't been able to do that. So hopefully they're not blowing assignments. That's a given. Hopefully they're winning these matchups handily. There should be holes. There should be running lanes. So probably a lot of running. And so maybe that depresses the score a little bit, but hopefully a lot of big runs that our guys get in the secondary and they're making guys miss and breaking off some big runs. If you're not seeing, if you're seeing the same kind of running effort against Towson as you do against Tennessee, that's very bad. That's a bad look for us. I don't know that it changes our future at all, but it's just not encouraging in the slightest. Okay, James, give me a score here. I think we cover this spread. I think if we were just playing to maximize our score, we'd be in the 60s and they'd be below 10. I just don't think we're going to do that. Knowing who Dan is, knowing how much he believes in the running game, knowing his post-game quote said, we weren't going to abandon the running game. We kept Emery in all fourth quarter to keep running the ball. Shows you really where he is at his core. And again, that's just a difference of opinion right between Dan and I. So because of that, I think that that makes the game go by much, much, much faster. And I'm going to say that we get into the high 40s, low 50s. So I'm going to say, I'm going to take op- optimistic view. here. I'm going to go 52 uh, to 10. And I don't really think Towson's probably going to score 10. I think even our backups on defense are adequate to stop them. But I'll go 52-10. Tends to work out this way, right? Florida over Towson. Yeah, I was going to say 48-10 to 10 or 13, depending on how frisky they want to stay late. Um, but I'll go 10 as well. Uh, how much of trash do you think we'll actually see in this game? I sadly think we're only going to see a half 
again, I think there's merit to give him more reps. Uh, I love Tom Brady. I've been posting this all over my friends' message boards. But after they obliterated my Dolphins, their linebacker, Van Noy, is quoted on a radio show on Monday. And they say, hey, why did Tom Brady play all the way until the last two minutes against Miami? Well, one, Tom Brady has a horrible record in Miami. That's part of it, right? But two, he said, hey, we work so hard all offseason and all during the week to play one game a week. None of us want to come out. We want to dominate the opponent. We want to maximize every opportunity we have. I think that's a championship mindset. That's the NFL. It's not college. I recognize that's different. But I think for Trask to be where we want him to be, oddly enough, at this stage, Alan, every single game rep is good for him because he does not have a lot of them. People in the stadium, TV cameras on him. Every rep is good. You certainly don't want him to play the entire game. That's unnecessary. But I think Dan may have a super quick trigger, just judging by the Emery kind of comments and experience he wants to give him. Maybe this is recruiting-based. We've not talked about this. There's certainly a narrative here where keep these guys happy, keep Emery getting lots of playing time. I don't know that's the case. I think a half is going to be what Trask gets. That's what I was going to say. And I think, actually, if you had three quarterbacks, maybe you would see it dispersed a little bit. But I also don't know that he wants Emory to play a million plays either, especially if he's going to be running the ball. There's nobody behind them. There's walk-ons. So if you had a third guy, maybe you would like to get him in the game a little bit, um, but nobody to really do that with. All right, let's talk about the Week 5 National Games. Not the strongest slate. A few interesting ones here. Yeah, we got Penn State minus 6.5. Number 12 Penn State minus 6.5 at my family's Maryland Terrapins. Maryland's had a week off heading into this game. Penn State does not look strong, but they're ranked number 12. What do you got here? This is a weird one. I mean, it's too bad that Maryland lost previously. Uh, That was a tough, tough loss against Temple. Uh, This would have been the best game of the week. It might still be the best game of the week, but it would have been the most high-profile uh, I'll take Maryland in the points here. Penn State has played everybody close pretty much. Yeah, I'm taking Maryland in the points here, too. I think they had a bye week. They have a nasty taste in their mouth. I think this Maryland team is talented. I think the questions about how good James Franklin is without Joe Moorhead are absolutely right. Their their points have just dropped off a cliff since Moorhead left there. And, of course, yes, Moorhead's my boy. But at the same point in time, I think we'll see if Penn State can survive what I think is going to be a very cagey Maryland team uh, coming off a bye. Arizona State, fresh off a loss, travels to Cal, fresh off a big, big win for them. Cal's now number 15 in the polls, Allen, and Cal's favored by five. I think they're ready for this. This is going to be a close game. Uh, I'm tempted to take Arizona State just because there's going to be points involved, but I'll take Cal here. I think Cal wins, but I'm taking what you just said. Arizona State's played everyone close, and so basically as Cal. This is going to be a huge home game for them, the biggest one in a long, long time, probably since the Tedford era. Uh, but I, I like the points that Arizona State's getting. I think Cal wins. Number 18, Virginia. Historic struggle against Old Dominion last week. That was a football game for a long time at home. Now goes on the road for their biggest game maybe ever. I don't even know. Possibly ever yeah, against, Notre, against Notre Dame, right? Probably ever. I mean, UVA has not had a history of big games. Uh, Notre Dame's ever by 11 in yes. this game. Only 11, which shows you Bronco Mendenhall's boys, they're giving him a shot. This is tight. Um, if this number was any bigger, I would definitely take UVA. UVA struggled. I don't know if that's the letdown coming off that big win against FSU, which even though FSU sucks, that's still a feather in their cap. Uh, Notre Dame, are they deflated coming off this weekend's Georgia? Or are they energized that they came down there? I, I don't know their mindset. 
Uh, this feels like a toss-up to me. Any, any fewer points, I definitely take Notre Dame. More points, I would definitely take UVA. But I'll take Notre Dame. I like Notre Dame, and again, you're hitting all my my talking points. I love it. I think they're super energized. You read some quotes from their players afterwards about physicality, and that was a big, big thing for them. You heard Kirby say they were really physical. He gave it to them this time. I think they're full of themselves right now in a good way because that was their problem. They were finesse. They were soft. They couldn't hit. They couldn't tackle. I think they feel like they're the big dog on the street now, and that may be what they need for the rest of the year. So we're going to see how it translates this week. Number 21, USC. The drama queen of college football, playing just an incredible schedule, though, Alan. I'm so jealous of the schedule. Every week it's something great. On the road against Washington. Washington favored by nine and a half. Who knows? I mean, you could have put any number out there, and I've been, oh, I'll think about that. I'll take Washington here. I think they're starting to put it together a little bit. This surprises me because we know that Vegas loves past history, and, and USC has given Washington all sorts of problems in these games. They're normally close. Jacob Eason does seem to have turned a corner, and obviously you're starting a third-string quarterback, but why not? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take USC to, to stay within the points range. I don't think they win within the points. Mississippi State at Auburn. I think I'm most looking forward to this game, Alan. This is my game of the week for me. Auburn ranked number seven, only favored by 11. Which that feels I think, about right. Which I think is right. It's right in the number. I think Mississippi State could be very cagey in this game. What do you think here? I mean, Auburn, this is the sandwich game, right? They were probably pretty high going at A&M. They're traveling to Florida the next week. You know, if this was at Mississippi State, I think I would pick an upset. Uh, I'll take Mississippi State during, with the points here, but I, I think Auburn will win. So Joe Moore had switched quarterbacks. They're feeling pretty good about what their new guy did coming over the weekend. I don't think Mississippi State's ready to win this game. This is a really tough spot, though, like you said. Don't underestimate these sandwich games. They take a huge toll on college players. This could be really interesting. I'm very excited about watching. I'm going to take Mississippi State to get under that 11. I just don't know if Auburn's offense can really beat Mississippi State by 11 yet. Ohio State gets its first kind of challenge. This game's lost a lot of luster. Uh, Number five, Ohio State, favored by 17.5, traveling to Nebraska. Ohio State, I've got to give them credit. They've obliterated everybody. And again, they haven't played anybody truly capable of even slowing them down. But until they do, I guess I'm going to have to take them. Hostile atmosphere for Justin Fields. First real chance to see what he can do on the road. I think that's why that number is 17 and not 24. But Nebraska's been just trash. Their defense is abysmal. It's It's horrific. And then their offense disappears for entire halves at a time. That's not a recipe to stay close to Ohio State. Although it very well could happen. I hope it does happen. Based upon the limited data we've seen, I've got to take Ohio State with a with a big with a big cover here. All right, the Cougs just probably still trying to make sense of what happened to them. Washington State travels to Utah, who's trying to make sense of what happened to them. Utah favored by six and a half. I have no idea. If you're trying to project like how teams are mentally, no clue. Man, this this feels like a total coin fight. I, if I were a betting person, I would never even touch this game. I don't want to feel for it all. But I like Utah at home, and this number's low enough that I'll take Utah. I'm going to take Washington State in an outright upset because Mike Leach clearly has more philosophical <laughs> things to go to. Uh, no, I think for real, I think that I think that really messed up Utah's like mental state of mind. Their goals are in front of them, but they had bigger goals. A lot of people were on them to be maybe the Pac-12 playoff team, and that's such a gut punch. Washington State is unbelievably cataclysmically bad. But they didn't expect to win anything this year. So for me, it's like, all right, you know what? We epically collapsed. That's atrocious and terrible. 
let's rub some salt in our wound here and then get past it. And, we'll and see. I mean, Utah's secondary got exposed by USC, and I don't know if Washington State can do the same thing, but if they can, this might not even be close. Oh, they should be able to. I mean, their quarterback right now is leading college football by like a million yards, I and mean, the guy throws for 500 yards a game. So we'll see. All right. NC State. <laughs> I just love it. NC State at FSU. FSU favored by six. So FSU, I guess, technically covered last week um, against a, a Louisville team that's definitely many step, steps behind them talent-wise. I mean, I don't know. Has FSU turned a slight corner into mediocrity? Maybe so. But I said I couldn't take them giving points to anybody. They covered. But I'm still going to take NC State in this game. Yeah, sell, sell, sell. NC State's got a history of playing them well. Louisville's one of the worst teams in that conference. NC State's better. I'm going to take the points here with NC State. Last but not least, and we just threw this one in there. It's definitely not a national interest game, but it's interesting for us Florida fans. Kentucky travels on the road to South Carolina. Maybe two teams you can't really get a direction for, but they're both good matches for each other. South Carolina is favored by four. Man, these are two tough, two teams coming off tough losses. <laughs> I mean, they're like little bit mirror images of one another. It's funny. Um, South Carolina at home, four points. That says Vegas likes them even a little bit more than just even. I'll go South Carolina here. This is this is why the SEC East is so uninspiring. Kentucky, South Carolina, Tennessee, Vanderbilt. It's like, what do you do with these games? I I, I can't pick on Will Muschamp's side. I can't pick on Mark Stoops' side. I don't know what I do here, but I suppose Kentucky, I think, is going to keep struggling without having Terry Wilson to really be the big play guy there. So I'll go with South Carolina, who seems to have more upside at the quarterback spot. Okay, that ends our look at the national games. Definitely just watch our game. You know, who cares? Uh, all right. And announced today, just before we start recording, another home and home in the future, this time with Utah in 2022 and 2023. This moved the needle for you, James. Do you, how do you feel about it? I love it. We talked about in the pod how we'd love to see more games being played against opponents we recognize. This isn't. This is a recognizable opponent. Is it USC? No. Is it Towson? No. It's better. It's definitely better. Plus, it'll be fun to watch us go play Utah. Uh, as long as, as Whittingham stays there, which it looks like he will, they're going to be good. They're almost always a top 25 team. That will be a top 25 matchup. And Utah's a cool state to go visit. Yeah, you know, Go check sure. out the Mormons. Check out everything going on out there. And uh, get out get out in nature as you watch the Gators play. But I like these. I'd like to see more of them. Yeah, agreed. And this is a cool spot, too. Like that, you know, who knows what's going to be happening in 2022. But um, odds are that they still will be good. I like that the number is coming down here. We're, we're announcing games in 2030. This is already in 2022, so that's cool. Um, but yeah, it's a cool place to visit. And I think that's been maybe part of Scott Strickland's plan. It's like, let's pick some spots people might actually want to go to. It's kind of a fun strategy. Anything else from you, James? I got nothing. Congratulations on the longest Gator Nation football no way. podcast episode ever. Wow, congrats to us we and to it. you all. All right, well, with that, I'll close it. Hopefully... We're coming off a win against Towson, and we'll be looking forward to the rest of the season. Hope you enjoy this. We'll see you guys later.